Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights on a Wednesday night. Yes, show 38. We have a fine show lined up for you today. We have some poetry by Mr Greg Beatty. Flash fiction comes from Terry Bisson. We have our news science article by our good friend Mr Jim Campanella. Well done Jim, getting me on that on time. And the main fiction comes from favourite of Starship Sova, Miss Cage Baker. So I hope you'll join me and listen to this fantastic audio magazine. So we will kick off, as usual, with a nice slice of Puri. The Werewolf Poet Laureate by Greg Beatty Somewhere in Elko there is a cowboy poet. He watches TV, drives a truck, but also rides a horse and knows the great wide open. You see authentic place in his manly verse. Somewhere in Iowa there is an Amish poet. He reads books, lights oil lamps, but also weaves his clothes and knows pre-technological silences. You feel authentic voice in his agrarian runes. Somewhere in Alaska, there's an Inuit poet. He uses bone knives and communal arts to hunt and build, but also knows whale, seal, and sea. You hear entire peoples resonating behind the flames of his chanted oral songs. Somewhere in Manhattan, there's a werewolf poet. He wears cologne, uses carbon steel knives, cell phones, text messaging, and automated ephemerides and online travel agencies to book the best flights to get him to Elko, Iowa, 
Alaska, where he listens respectfully to his peers. Then, when the moon rises full, eats them. You need not be a lycanthrope to hear in his barbaric yawp pure tones of lust and satiation and digestion of forebears. He's popular on Wall Street and after visiting the White House may be the first werewolf poet laureate. As usual, my thanks go out to Mr. Greg Beardy for allowing us to narrate some of his works there. Don't forget, as usual, copyright is Greg's. And Julie Davis. Julie, thank you so much. Do pop over to their, both their websites, Julie Davis at Forgotten Classics and Mr. Greg Beardy over there. Links on the main site. So we now come to our flash fiction. And, well, I hope you like it. It is by Terry Bisson, a favourite of the Starship Sova again. So please sit back and enjoy the story. Billy and the Wizard by Terry Bison Billy had a secret. He liked to play with dolls. One of Billy's dolls could talk. His name was Clyde. Clyde only talked when Billy pulled his string. One day, Billy pulled his string. Would you like to meet the wizard? Clyde asked. Billy was surprised. Clyde had never asked a question before. Billy pulled his string again. How about it? Clyde asked. How many little boys get to meet the wizard? What's he the wizard of? Billy asked. He pulled Clyde's string again. He's the wizard of everything, Clyde said, and he's hiding in the garage. What's he hiding from? asked Billy. He pulled Clyde's string again. He's the wizard of everything, said Clyde. Sometimes Clyde said the same thing over and over, and he's hiding in the garage. Billy looked in the garage. There was nothing in the garage but old magazines. I looked in the garage, said Billy, but I didn't see any wizard. He pulled Clyde's string. Of course not, said Clyde. He's hiding. You have to look harder. Billy looked harder. I still don't see any wizard, he said. He pulled Clyde's string. Of course not, said Clyde. He's hiding. You have to look harder. Billy looked harder. He looked through all the magazines. Finally, he found one called Today's Wizard. He opened it up, and there was the wizard. He was little and flat, and he wore a pointy hat. I'm not the wizard, he said. Go away. You are so, said Billy. I can tell by your head. The wizard didn't say anything. He was just a picture. After a while, Billy turned the page. There was the wizard again. How did you find me? Clyde told me you were hiding in the garage, said Billy. He turned to the page again. The wizard was the same on every page. He had a pointy beard to go with his pointy hat. 
Bet lad, said the wizard. Are you really the wizard of everything? Billy asked. Turn the page, said the wizard. Billy did. And who told you that, my boy? Clyde, said Billy. That Clyde, said the wizard. You should know better than to pull his string. Turn the page. Billy turned the page again. I'm not the wizard of everything, said the wizard. I'm the wizard of everything else. Billy thought about that. Who are you hiding from? he asked. Who do you think? asked the wizard. Billy turned the page. I give up, he said. The devil, said the wizard. Now put me back in the pile. Are you playing with dolls again? asked Billy's mother. She was standing in the door of the carriage. No, ma'am, said Billy. Come to supper then. Billy was playing with dolls again, said Billy's mother. She was carving the turkey. Of course, said Billy's father. That's because he's a sissy. I am not, said Billy. You are so, said Billy's father. Look, I brought you another doll. Billy took the doll to his room after supper. It was a baby doll. Billy hated it. It had a string. Billy pulled it. You're a sissy, said the doll. I am not, said Billy. He shook the doll and pulled the string again. You are so, said the doll. Billy tied the doll to a pencil. Then he got a book of matches and burned the doll up. He pulled its string so he could hear it scream. What are you doing in there? asked Billy's mother. Nothing, said Billy. Playing with dolls, said Billy's father. Dolls are stupid, said Billy. It was the next day. He was playing with Clyde behind the garage where no one could see. I hate dolls, he said. Pull my string, said Clyde. Billy did. Even dolls hate dolls, said Clyde. I would rather be a little boy like you. Really, said Billy. He hugged Clyde and pulled his string again. Not really, said Clyde. You're a sissy. Would you like to meet the wizard? I already did, said Billy. And I'm not a sissy. How many little sissies get to meet the wizard? Asked Clyde. Billy threw Clyde into the garbage and went to the garage to find the wizard. He opened today's wizard and there he was in his pointy hat. Where's Clyde? asked the wizard. He called me a sissy, said Billy. He turned the page. That Clyde, said the wizard. I told you not to pull his string. I had no one else to play with, said Billy. He looked around the garage. It was dark and scary. Can I take you outside? he asked. No way, said the wizard. I'm in hiding. Why's the devil after you? he asked. Why do you think? asked the wizard. Billy turned the page. I give up, he said. He wants to steal my hat, said the wizard, so he can rule the world. Billy thought about that. What does he look like? he asked. He turned the page. He looks ugly and evil, said the wizard. Now put me back in the pile. Here comes your mother. What are you doing in there? asked Billy's mother. Nothing, 
said Billy. Put your dolls away and come to supper. Get a load of this, said Billy's father. He was reading the paper. Wizard goes into hiding. He's hiding from the devil, Billy said. He's apparently not the wizard of everything anyway, said Billy's father. So what's the big deal? He's the wizard of everything else, said Billy. What do you know about it, said Billy's mother. Eat your turkey. They had turkey every night. Billy woke up in the middle of the night. Clyde was standing on his chest. Billy was afraid. I'm sorry I threw you in the garbage, he said. Pull my string, said Clyde. Billy pulled his string. I'm sorry I called you a sissy, said Clyde. Now hurry, come with me. It's an emergency. What's the problem? Billy asked. He pulled Clyde's string. The devil's in the garage, looking for the wizard. It's an emergency. It was midnight. Billy's parents were asleep. Billy sneaked out the side door into the garage. The devil was sitting on the floor, going through the magazines. He looked ugly and evil. He had a snout like a dog. He wasn't wearing any pants. What are you doing here? asked Billy, even though he knew. Don't bother me, kid, said the devil. Go play with your dolls. The wizard's not here, said Billy. You're a liar, said the devil. I like that. Now go back to bed and leave me alone. I have work to do. He started going through the magazines again. This is my garage, said Billy. It is not, said the devil. It's your father's. And you're a sissy. I am not, said Billy. If I had a gun, I would shoot you. Be my guest, said the devil. Then he said something in Latin, and a magic gun appeared in Billy's hand. It was silver. Billy pointed it at the devil and pulled the trigger. But it just went click. Guess I forgot to load it, said the devil. He grinned. It takes gold bullets and I'm out. But look what I found. He held up a magazine. It was today's wizard. Thanks for the tip, Clyde, he said. Billy was shocked. You told on him, he said. He pulled Clyde's string. I'm sorry, said Clyde. Pull my string again. But only halfway out this time. Don't do it, said the devil. But Billy did. See this passing parabellum, said Clyde. Bibre venominoro. The devil stood up, looking scared. And no wonder, three gold bullets had appeared in Billy's gun. I was just about to leave, said the devil. He held the magazine over his face and tried to hide, but it did him no good. Billy shot him three times, once in the snout and twice in the heart. The devil disappeared. So did the magic gun. Only the magazine was left. Billy picked it up. It had a bullet hole all the way through it. Oh no, said Billy. He opened it with trembling hands. The wizard's pointy hat had a hole in it. 
but the wizard was okay, or so it seemed. Good going, Billy, he said. You're no sissy, but how did the devil find me? Billy told him and turned the page. That Clyde, the wizard said, he can't keep his big mouth shut. Pull his string and let's see what he has to say for himself. Billy pulled Clyde's string. I'm sorry, said Clyde. The devil said he would make me a devil too. Anything's better than being a doll, almost. We all make mistakes, said the wizard. So I forgive you. Besides, you saved the day. It's true, said Billy. Maybe the wizard will make you into a little boy as a reward. Thanks anyway, said Clyde. I'd rather be a doll. Billy thought about that. Suit yourself, said the wizard. I'm out of here. What about your hat? Billy asked the wizard. It has a hole in it. I have an extra, said the wizard. He was starting to fade away. And now I don't have to hide any more. Billy turned the page. The pointy hat was still there, and so was the hole, but the wizard was gone. What's that infernal racket? said Billy's father. He was standing in the door. Give me that magazine and go back to bed. Yes, sir, said Billy. He handed his father the magazine. Today's wizard, said Billy's father. He threw it onto the pile. Point to hats and dolls. You're such a sissy. Go back to bed and take your doll with you. Yes, sir, said Billy. He pulled Clyde's string and he went into the house. You're the big sissy, said Clyde. What did you say? asked Billy's father. Nothing, said Billy. It wasn't me. What a fantastic story, and what a great narration. Narration today comes from Gareth Stack. Gareth, the man of many voices. Don't forget, have a look out for Gareth Stack's hipnovel.com. Go over there, he's got a new novel out. Please make your support known, even if you just say hello, Gareth. And don't forget to pop over and have a look at Terry Business site as well. It's Terry Business turned out to be a firm favourite of Starship Sofa. We were lucky enough to bag the Bears Discover Fire a while back, so that was a great addition to the sofa. So, Terry, thank you very much. Don't forget, copyright is Terry Bisson. Links to Terry and Gareth's site are at the front of the website. So now it's time for the news, science news article by our very good friend, Mr. Jim Campanella. Certainly Jim needs no introduction here, but I would just like to say, Jim, these are really proven very popular, so thank you very much. Just keep them coming, sir. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to August Science Fact Update. At least I will call it that lame title for now until somebody suggests something a bit cooler. I'm sure you guys are probably better at naming things than me. I figured since this was a monthly column that it should have some sort of a name. So what is our topic tonight? Well, the overall topic is aging. Why do we get old and is there any way to stop it? I have several stories that actually address those questions. Uh, these stories range from the almost silly to the very serious. Let me start off with the silly ones first. All right, at least partly silly. Some of you may know the comedian Louis Black, 
who comments regularly on The Daily Show. Black has the wondrous ability to go on long, fuming rants about all sorts of political and social points and make them quite funny. In one of his commentaries, he once made a point that scientists cannot be trusted from day to day to be helpful about what is good for you and what is not. He was actually raving about hydration and the need for water and how researchers cannot seem to agree whether lots of water hurts you or helps you. Well, I've got two stories related to that kind of point. At one time, doctors insisted that wine and coffee, even in moderation, were bad for you. And if not bad for you, then certainly not helpful. Well, recent research suggests that that is not the case. Let's start with the more recent story about coffee. It appears that two to three cups of coffee may actually lower your statistical likelihood of death. Over 120,000 people were studied by Dr. Lopez Garcia and collaborators from Harvard and the University of Madrid. Their work was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine recently. The study followed two large cohorts of men and women who provided data on coffee consumption and health outcomes, and they looked at them every two to four years over a 20-year period. By the way, in my opinion, committing your lab to a 20-year health study is a bit like gambling in Las Vegas. All that you can hope for is that it turns out well, but the odds are pretty much always against you. At any rate, high coffee consumption was not related to increased mortality and seemed to be associated with lower total and cardiovascular mortality. That means fewer and less fatal heart attacks. Probably the most interesting conclusion of the study was that coffee drinkers who tended to smoke more, drink more alcohol, not take vitamins, or exercise less than average had about the same death rate as those who didn't drink coffee at all. So good news for those of you who abuse your bodies. Drink coffee and save yourselves. So what about all the earlier studies that linked coffee consumption to nastiness like pancreatic cancer or uh, elevated risk for heart disease? Well, according to Lopez Garcia, those studies did not account for the fact that coffee drinkers in general tend to have less healthy lifestyles. In other words, it was not the coffee making those people sicker. It was the fact that they were smoky, lazy, beer-swilling slobs. Okay, one last thing. You need to drink coffee to get this effect. It doesn't matter whether it's caffeinated or decaffeinated, but if you drink Starbucks lattes or other cutesy drinks with lots of sugar and lots of cream and lots of fat, you will just offset any physical benefit that you get and be back to square one. Also, they found that drip-filtered coffee seemed to be the best. Turkish and French press coffees are boiled and have high levels of a chemical called cafestol which increases blood cholesterol and kind of brings you back to square one again. My second food-related story is about wine, indirectly about wine at least. We have known for a number of years now that red wine or even grape juice have a chemical that seems to reduce blood pressure and help the heart. This chemical is called resveratrol. Recent data from the University of Cincinnati and Spanish National Cancer Research Center in Madrid suggests that Resveratrol has another ability. Mice who are dosed with it live longer because it seems to mimic a low-calorie restriction diet. You may or may not remember that little bit of longevity research was published several years back. It seems that if you reduce the amount of calories of, of a mouse to the point where they just get enough to live and survive, they will actually live 
30% longer than mice on a normal diet. So what is the upshot here? Resveratrol may be a chemical that can force your cells to react as if they were on a low-calorie diet without being forced to eat nothing but sprouts day in, day out. Imagine that, a chemical that fools your body into thinking that you are being healthy. One of the other results that they found is that obese mice on this chemical actually live as long as normal weight mice. Wahoo, right? Well, maybe. Maybe not quite so wahoo. The basis for this longevity is a family of antioxidative chemicals called sirtuins. Sirtuins seem to have the ability to reduce oxidative damage in liver and heart muscle cells. Well, all muscle cells. These chemicals are induced to be made by cells in the presence of resveratrol or low caloric intake. Those mice treated with resveratrol also had better bone health, fewer cataracts, and improved coordination as they aged. According to another study by Rafael de Cabo of the U.S. National Institute of Aging. So this sounds great, right? Is there a problem? Well, first, yeah, there are a couple of problems. First, although treated mice live longer, they're still prone to normal levels of cancer. Apparently, the sirtuins have little effect on lowering cancer levels. So it is possible that we may be onto something that will make us heart healthy or heart healthier up until our deaths, but not keep us from getting cancer. But hey, that's not so bad, right? Nobody ever said that red wine was a magic bullet. However, unfortunately, there's another slight problem. According to a report in the July issue of Cell Metabolism, increasing sirtuin levels in nervous system tissues, like the brain, make those tissues more sensitive to oxidative damage, not less. This could mean that you will live to an old age drinking your resveratrol-laced wine and your mind will go all that much more quickly in your heart-healthy body. Yeah, not a good thing. One thing that this does tell you is that this stuff is not simple. You can see why the researchers are confused about whether anything is good or bad for you, and why the disclaimers rain down like snow in Iceland. So far, none of this bodes well for you Lazarus-long wannabes out there. Uh, So what can you do? Well, it depends. Statistically, your best bet for living a long time is being a female and being on a calorie-restricted diet. This according to Adamo Valle of the University of Balearic Islands in Spain. Valle and company studied male and female rats, and the female rats did live longer, healthier lives under the same conditions as the male rats. The calorie-restricted males mimicked the pattern seen in females on a normal diet. Yes, A guy cannot catch a break. Well, I guess it means that the male rats were living longer, just rarely as long as the female mice ever did. It's not quite Lazarus' long lifespan, but gentlemen, sometimes you take what you are given. I've got two last stories on aging and age extension. The first is about aging and evolution. Now, I know that is a dirty word to many people, but please do not burn me at the stake. I'm Catholic, and I believe in evolution. I know that sounds strange, but this is not only possible, it's even allowed by the church, and this is not the place for theological arguments, so let us sidestep those issues for the moment. In the past, I have discussed aging and evolution with colleagues, and the question is, why do humans survive into old age, long past the point of reproduction? What is the point of human longevity? Now think about it. From an evolutionary standpoint, reproduction is 
the be-all and end-all of all things. Once you have had your kids and made sure they are grown up to reproduce themselves, you can die. That is the norm in much of the animal world. By all rights, humans should be dead by about the age of 30. Yes, that assumes the next generation reproducing at about the age of 15, which is not something I am encouraging my daughter or son to do in the future. So why aren't we all dead by 30? Why do we survive at all into old age? Well, one of my colleagues suggested that it may be in humans that it is evolutionarily advantageous for the parental generation to survive to be the grandparental generation. That is, in human society, the grandparental generation helps ensure the survival of the newest generation of children. Oh, and off-topic, recent data also suggests that the grandparents are kept younger and more vigorous with children around. That might be a nice suggestion on why humans have such great longevity, but it does not suggest at all why we age. The typical answer to that question has been that aging is a result of oxidative and physical wear and tear on the body. In other words, we just wear out from all the stress. And that has been the accepted answer, and there is no doubt that it is partially true. However, a more recent and radical suggestion is that all animal aging is a genetic and evolutionary accident. That during early evolution, millions of years ago, something went wrong in the developmental genetics of animals. And because of that genetic alteration in our ancient multicellular ancestors, all animals living today are cursed with the inheritance of aging. Although many Christians would freak at the ironic suggestion, again, because of the evolutionary stuff it implies, that actually tracks with the biblical curse against Adam and Eve that they would age and die as punishment for their sins. Hmm. Interesting. At any rate, a Stanford University study in the soil worm C. elegans suggests that although environmental stresses and cell damage do play a role in longevity, it may be a lot more complicated than that. The report in the journal Cell identified three genes that appear to control the majority of changes in gene expression that accompany aging. The researchers exposed worms to a range of environmental stresses, including heat, DNA damage, and oxidative stress. And they found that the expression of the controller genes was largely unaffected while they were young. It was only as the worms aged that the balanced expression of those genes changed. Based on the results, the researchers suggested that aging is an accidental developmental program that alters the expression of those three major genes. To see if they could fix the problem, Stuart Kim, who was the lead investigator, and his collaborators tried rebalancing the regulatory network in middle-aged worms by making their gene expression pattern resemble that of younger organisms. And, ta-da, the animals lived longer. If aging is simply a matter of unbalanced gene expression in humans, as it is in worms, then this may open up a whole new area of research. Pharmacologists, gerontologists, and chemists will have a whole slew of drug targets, proteins, and genes that may allow us to slow the aging process. So we may soon have anti-aging compounds that are a little more potent than red wine to imbibe. It's even possible that the rebalancing may work better in humans than it does in worms. Worms are born and die with their entire complement of cells. They have no stem cells. Our human stem cells give us the ability to replace broken, damaged, or aged cells. So this could actually be an advantage in aging and responding to such treatment. 
Okay, on to the last story of the night. Let's go back to Heinlein's Lazarus Long and his 1941 novel, Methuselah's Children. This is one of the first SF books I read as a kid, and I was fascinated by the idea that just due to the accident of genetics, some people could live longer than others. Although in the case of Heinlein's Howard family, it was planned eugenics, but you get the idea. Today, geneticists are interested in the same thing. Why are certain people at the far end of the bell curve in terms of age? And not only why do they live longer, but what chance genetics allows some of them to be healthy right into their 90s and beyond? The Genomic Medicine Program at Scripps Science Institute out in California has begun a genomic study of 100 major genes in 1,000 people age 80 or older who have never suffered any serious illnesses or taken any medication. They plan to sequence those 100 genes in all 1,000 people. The 100 genes are known from animal research and other studies to influence health and aging. Quote, we are especially interested in major housekeeping, master control genes like those involved in DNA repair or insulin growth factor 1, unquote, says Eric Topol, who is the chief researcher on the project. Projects like this have actually been done before, but this one is unique because it will look at a very large population with more genes examined than ever before. And this will, of course make the statistics actually credible for once that they find. The work will look at the existence of rare variations of expression in different genes that play a role in health and disease. The DNA sequencing will allow Topol and his colleagues to determine if healthy older people are more likely to carry variations that either make defensive protein factors function more efficiently or whether they hinder the activity of harmful factors that speed up aging. Again, this type of study will lead to the creation of new classes of drugs that could slow aging. If you identify the molecular basis for any type of age-protective effect, then given time, you can eventually mimic that effect with drugs. Okay, so how do I close this rambling and disjointed entry? Do I want to live longer? Yes, probably. But truthfully, I'm not sure that I would be happy living longer unless my wife could as well, and my kids and my friends. Staying young while others turn old around you is an old theme in SF. Probably the first time I came across it was in the original Star Trek episode Requiem for Methuselah. Uh, Let me remind you of what that was about. The poor title character, Methuselah, is ancient, hundreds and hundreds of years old, and has gotten so sick of his loved ones dying and aging that he has built the perfect ageless female android to be his companion, which, of course, Kirk has to try to seduce and, of course, causes trouble. Anyway, I imagine that it must be horrible having all your family and friends taken from you as they age and you don't, or not quite so much. Equally awful would be surviving to old age without the benefits of health, I have a great aunt who survived to 95. She recently passed away, but she's been sickly for the last couple of years, spending much of her time in bed and barely ambulatory. I mean, I felt pretty bad for her and thought it almost a blessing when she finally passed. There are a few things worse than being in continual pain with your mind functioning at only a degree of its normal competence. Perhaps being old and healthy and surrounded by those you love is asking too much, but yeah, if I get all that, then bring on old age. I'm ready for it. Um, As the young drip Clyde from the Doctor Who spinoff, the Sarah Jane Adventures, put it. way technology's moving, by the time I'm 40, I can get my brain put in a robot and live forever. Uh, Yeah, maybe. Maybe not. Thanks for listening. As usual, take care. 
and I hope I have inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, thank you very much, sir. I'm going to start going to night classes. Certainly am. <laughs> Jim, yes, thank you. Please, like I say, keep them coming. I know you kind of push for time and everything like that, but we do appreciate it. And I hope that's also inspired anyone out there who wants to do a little kind of article. You know, even if it doesn't have to be kind of monthly. It's just if you've got an idea and you think that would make a nice little article for the Starship Sofa, get yourself a mic, record it and send it over and I will have a listen to it. And that goes the same for the flash fiction. Don't forget, if you want to have a little go at flash fiction, you can kind of take it up now, you know, between about, I guess, 1,200 words would be kind of fine by me. As long as it kind of comes under 10, 12 minutes, I'm fine by that. It can cross the boundaries, a little bit of science fiction, fantasy, horror, you name it. If you want any info, please just drop me an email, starshipsofa at gmail.com. Just pop over to the website, starshipsofa.com. I would love to hear from you. So we come on to the main fiction tonight, Cage Baker. And Cage Baker was proven very popular with the Starship so far when she let us have our last story by her good self. And it's the same narrator, MCL, who hams it up fantastic in this one as well. So please, have a listen, tell us what you think. Do pop over to the website and log on to the forums and, you know, there's a place there where you can kind of drop your comments and your feet and your thoughts on this story and everything else that's in today's show. That would be fantastic. I hope you will do that. So, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents Hellfire at Twilight by Cage Baker. On a certain autumn day in the year 1774, a certain peddler walked the streets of a certain residential district in London. His pack was full, because he wasn't really making much of an effort to sell any of his wares. His garments were shabby and rather large for him, but clean and cut with a style making it not outside the powers of imagination that he might in fact be a dashing hero of some kind. One temporarily down on his luck, perhaps conceivably the object of romantic affection. He whistled as he trudged along, doffed his hat and made a leg when the coaches of the great rumbled by, spattering him with mud. When occasionally hailed by customers, he stopped, rifled through his pack with alacrity, producing sealing wax, bobbins of thread, blotting paper, cheap stockings, penny candles, tinder boxes, soap, pins and buttons. His prices were reasonable, his manner deferential without being fawning, but he was nonetheless unable to make very many sales. Indeed, so little notice was taken of him that he might as well have been invisible when he slipped down an alley and came out into one of the back lanes that ran behind the houses. This suited his purpose, however. He proceeded along the backs of sheds and garden fences with an ease born of familiarity and went straight to a certain stretch of brick wall. He balanced briefly on tiptoe to peer over and then knocked at the gate in a certain pattern. Rap, rap, rap. The gate was opened by a maid with such abruptness it was pretty evident she'd been lurking there waiting for his knock. 
You ain't half behind your time, she said. I was assailed by profitable custom, he replied, sweeping off his hat and bowing. Good morning, my dear. What have you for me today? Gooseberry, she said. Only it's gone cold, you know. I shan't mind one whit, the peddler replied, swinging his pack round. And I've brought you something particularly nice in return. Oh, you never found one. Wait and see, said the peddler with a roguish wink. He reached into the very bottom of his pack and brought out an object wrapped in brown paper. Presenting it to the maid with a flourish, he watched as she unwrapped it. You never, she cried, and whipped a glass lens out of her apron pocket and held the object up, examining it closely. <sighs> Massaneo of Kyoto, that is, she announced. Here's the cartouche. Boxwood, very nice. Some sort of funny little dog, is it? It's a fox, I believe. So it is. Well, what a stroke of luck! The maiden tucked both Lens and Netsuk into her apron pocket. You might go by Limehouse on your rounds, you know. They do say there's all sorts of curious things to be had there. What a good idea, said the peddler, hefted his pack again and looked at her expectantly. Oh, your pie, to be sure. Lie, was that excited I did forget. The maid ran indoors and returned a moment later with a small pie wrapped in a napkin. Extra well lined, just as you asked. Not a word to your good master about this, however, said the peddler, laying his finger beside his nose. Hey, my dear. Right you are, said the maid, repeating the gesture with a knowing wink. He don't miss all that old parchment, busy as he is. I know there's ever so much more room in that spare cupboard. The peddler took his leave and walked on. Finding a shady spot with a view of the Thames, he sat down and ever so carefully lifted the pie out of its parchment shell, though he was obliged to peel the last sheet free, it having been well gummed with gooseberry leakage. He spread the sheets out across his lap, studying them thoughtfully as he bit into the pie. They were closely written in much-blotted ink, ancient jottings in a quick hand. What to flesh out this foolish fairy play? Too insubstantial. Noble court of Oberon not unlike. Theseus, his court. This contrast invidious, yet too much wit in that line of the M of Revels, liketh it not. Lovers not sufficiently pleasing of themselves. Think, think, will think, he read aloud through a full mouth. How is a rustic brought in? How can find fault there by Jesus? Say, a weaver, bellows mender, or some such in the woods by chance? Excellent good meat for Kemp. Jesu, how of a company of rustics? As who should be aping we players? Memo speak with Burbage on this. At that moment, he blinked, frowned, and shook his head. Red letters were dancing in front of his eyes. Toxic response alert. I beg your pardon, he murmured aloud. Vaguely, he waved a hand through the air in front of his face, as though swatting away flies while he ran a self-diagnostic. The red letters were not shooed away. Yet neither did his organic body appear to be having any adverse reactions to anything he was tasting, touching or breathing. But the red letters did fade slightly after a moment. 
He shrugged, had another mouthful of pie, and kept reading. A cost of properties, not so much, and it might be, were we to use again the dresses for that Merlin play. Toxic response alert, cried the letters again, flashing bright. The peddler scowled in real annoyance and ran another self-diagnostic. He received back the same results as before. He looked closely at the pie in his hand. It appeared wholesome, with gooseberry filling oozing out between buttery crusts. And he was rather hungry, too. With a sigh, he wrapped it in a pocket handkerchief and set it aside. Carefully, he packed the Shakespeare notes in a flat folder and slid it into his pack, took up the pie again and walked away quickly in the direction of St Paul's. There was a stately commercial edifice of brick built on a slope presenting its respectable upper stories level with the busy street above. The side facing downhill to the river, however, looked out on one of the grubbier waste grounds in London, thickly grown with weeds. Little winding dog paths crossed the area, and the peddler followed one to an unobtrusive-looking door set in the cellar wall of the aforementioned edifice. He did not knock, but stood patiently, waiting as various unseen devices scanned him. Then the door swung inward, and he stepped inside. He walked down an aisle between rows of desks at which sat assorted gentlemen or ladies working away at curious blue-glowing devices. One or two people nodded to him as he passed or waved a languid pen. He smiled pleasantly but proceeded past them to a low flight of stairs and climbed to a half-landing which opened out on a private office. One door bore a sign in gold lettering that read, Repairs. The peddler opened the door, looked in, and called hesitantly. "You, Calendar, are you receiving? What the hell is it now? said someone from behind a painted screen. A face rose above the screen, glaring through what appeared to be a pair of exceedingly thick spectacles. Oh, it's you, Lewis. Sorry, I've been trying to catch the last episode of Les Vampires. Uh, there's an anthropologist over in Cheapside who keeps transmitting on my channel, all in a panic because he thinks... Oh, well, never mind. W what can I do for you? Lewis set the half-eaten pie down on Cullender's desk blotter. Would you mind very much scanning this for toxins? Cullender blinked in surprise at it. He switched off the ring hollow, removed it, and came round the screen to unwrap the handkerchief. Hmm. Hmm. Gooseberry, he observed. Looks all right to me. Uh, well, but when I take a bite of it, I get this red alert telling me it's toxic, said Lewis, holding his fingers up at eye level and making jerky little stabs at the air to signify flashing lights. Cullender frowned, perplexed. He took off his wig, draped it over a corner of the screen, and scratched his scalp. Mm. You run a self-diagnostic, I suppose? Certainly I did. I appear to be fit as a fiddle. Where'd you get it? Uh, from the cook of a certain collector of rare documents, said Lewis, lowering his voice. <clears throat> oh, the um, <coughs> Shakespeare correspondence. <laughs> Cullender looked at the pie with new respect. Mm -hmm. He turned it over carefully, as though expecting to find the front page of Lubb's Labour's One stuck there. <laughs> I've already peeled the parchment off, said Lewis, but I did wonder, you know, whether some sort of chemical interaction with the old parchment or the ink, perhaps. And, oh, yes, to be sure, to be sure. Cullender took the pie with both hands and held it up. He stared at it intently. 
His eyes seemed to go out of focus, and in a flat voice he began rattling off a chemical analysis of its ingredients. Uh, no, nothing unusual, he said in a perfectly normal voice when he had done. He took a bite of the pie and chewed thoughtfully. Mm, delicious. Uh, any flashing red letters? Nary a one. Half a minute. I've thought of something. Cullender went to a shelf and took down what appeared to be a small Majolica ware saucer. He held it out to Lewis. Uh, spit. There's a good fellow. I beg your pardon. Just wake up a good one. Don't, don't be shy. It's the latest thing in non-invasive personal chemistry diagnostics. But I've run the diagnostic already, said Lewis, in tones of mild exasperation. And spat anyway. Well, but you see, this gives us a different profile, said Cullender, studying the saucer as he swirled its contents to a fro. Yes, 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 as I thought as much. Aha, perfectly clear now. Would you care to enlighten me? There's nothing about which you need be concerned. Merely a cryptoallergy, Cullender said as he stepped back into a cubicle and rinsed off the dish. I'm sorry. Had you lived your life as a mortal man, you'd have been allergic to gooseberries, said Cullender, returning to his desk. But when we underwent the process that made us cyborgs, our organic systems were given the ability to neutralise allergens. Nonetheless, sometimes a little glitch in the software reads the allergen as an active toxin, sent you a warning, when in fact you've nothing to fear from the allergen at all. It's merely a false alarm. Don't let it trouble you, my friend. But I've eaten gooseberries plenty of times. Uh, you may have become sensitised. Had a mortal acquaintance once become allergic to asparagus at the age of 40. Um, one day he's happily wolfing it down with mayonnaise. The next day he's covered in hives the size of half-crowns at the mere smell of the stuff. <laughs> but I'm a cyborg, said Lewis, with a certain amount of irritation. Uh, well, a minor error in programming, perhaps, said Cullender. Who knows why these things happen, eh? <laughs> Could be sunspots. There haven't been any. Ah, true. Well, has not been in for an upgrade recently? No. Well, perhaps you ought to, then. <laughs> and in the meanwhile, just avoid gooseberries. You'll be fine. Very well, said Lewis stiffly, tucking his handkerchief in the back of his pocket. Good day. He turned and left the repairs office. Behind him, Cullender surreptitiously picked up the rest of the pie and crammed it into his mouth. Lewis proceeded down the hall to the cloakroom, where he claimed a change of clothes and continued to the showers. He bathed, attired himself in a natty ensemble, a neatly powered wig that made him indistinguishable from any respectable young clerk in the better offices in London, and went to the cloakroom to turn in his peddler's outfit. The pack went with it, save for the folder containing the Shakespeare notes. Uh, "'Literature preservation specialist, grade three, Lewis,' said the cloak warden meditatively. "'Your case officer's expecting you, you know. Uh, upstairs.' "'Ah, I could just do with a cup of coffee,' said Lewis. He tucked the folder under his arm, set his tricorn on his head at a rakish angle, and went off down the hall to climb another flight of stairs. Having reached the top, and having passed through no less than three hidden panels, he stepped out into Thames Street coffee room that sat above the London headquarter of Dr. Zeus Incorporated.' The coffee room, in its decor, reflected the Enlightenment, rather than being dark-panelled, low-beamed and full of jostling sheep farmers clutching leathern jacks of ale. It was high-ceilinged and spacious, with wainscoting painted white, great windows admitting the admittedly somewhat compromised light and air of a London afternoon, and full of clerks, politicians and poets chatting over coffee served in porcelain cups imported from China. 
Lewis threaded his way between the tables, smiling and nodding. He heard chatter of Gainsborough's latest painting and the disquiet in the American colonies. Three periwigged gentlemen in tailored silk of pastel Easter egg colours discussed Goethe's latest. Uh, two red-faced, jolly-looking elders pondered the fall of the Jesuits. A table full of grim men in snuff-coloured broadcloth debated the fortunes of the British East India Company. Someone else in a bottle-green waistcoat was declaring that Mesmer was a fraud. And over in a secluded nook, a gentleman of saturnine countenance was watching the room, his features set in an expression compounded of equal parts disdain and boredom. Ave Nunius, Lewis transmitted. The gentleman turned his head, spotted Lewis, and stifled a yawn. Ave Lewis. He took out his watch and looked at it in a rather pointed fashion as Lewis came to his table and removed his hat. "'Your servant, sir,' said Lewis aloud. Uh, "'Dr. Nennis, I believe I had the great pleasure of your acquaintance "'at Mr. Despater's party some weeks ago.' "'I believe you are correct, sir. "'Pray have a seat, won't you? "'The boy is just bringing a fresh pot.' "'Too kind of you, too kind,' said Lewis. "'As he settled into a chair, he held up the folder containing the parchments, "'waggled his eyebrows in a triumphant manner, "'and set it down at Nennius' elbow.' "'I believe you collect antiquities, sir, do you not? "'If you will do me the kindness of examining these papers, "'I believe you will find much to engage your interest.' "'Don't lay it on with a trowel, for God's sake,' transmitted Nennius, "'but aloud he said, "'Indeed, let us see.' "'He opened the folder and studied its contents, "'whilst a waiter brought another pot of coffee "'and a fresh cup and saucer for Lewis. "'Would you be dining, sir? Cake or something?' "'Lewis.' felt the pangs of appetite. Ah, have you any apple pie? Uh, yes, sir, said the waiter. Bring you a nice one, and withdrew. Well, yes, and then it's very interesting. Um, some prime examples here. Private correspondence, notes, what appears to be a script page or two. <laughs> he lifted out one parchment and pursed his lips in annoyance as it brought two other pages with it, glued together by fruit filling. "'Rather a lot of work for the conservators, however.' "'Lewis spread out his hands in a gesture of apology. "'At least we have them. Uh, "'Before I made contact, she was using them to light the boiler. "'Poor old fellow. "'I expect he'll have apoplexy when he finds out. "'Still, history cannot be changed,' said Nennius, "'finishing the statement for him. "'So humbly ought to profit from it, eh? <laughs> "'Not a bad job overall, Lewis.' He closed the folder and studied his nails as the waiter brought a sturdy-looking apple tart and set it before Lewis. The waiter left, and as Lewis was happily breaking into the crust with a fork, Nenia said, "'Phil, they're pulling you out, sending you down to the Chilterns.' Mm, lovely country thereabouts,' said Lewis, noting in satisfaction that no red letters flashed in his field of vision. He had another mouthful of pie. "'What's the quarry, pray?' If it really exists, it's a Greek scroll or codex that could be anywhere from 3,000 to 1,700 years old, said Nellius. On the other hand, it may be a fraud, the sort of thing that will be cobbled together and sold to an impressionable young Briton on a grand tour. Your job is to find it, which may in itself be a bit tricky, and obtain it for the company, which may be more difficult still. 
and determine whether it's authentic or otherwise, I assume. Of course, of course. <laughs> Nenius took a calfskin folder nearly identical to the one Lewis had given him and deftly switched them. Your directions and letter of introduction are in there. Scholar wanting employment, highly recommended. Encyclopedic knowledge of all things Greek and Latin. Expert curator of papyrus, parchment, and etc., etc. The gentleman in question has an extensive library. Sounds easy. Hours of browsing through a splendid classical library. Now that's my idea of posting. How nice that you bring your customary enthusiasm to the job. <laughs> Though we don't believe your specific quarry will be in the library. In fact, more likely have been a box of some kind somewhere in one of the tunnels. Perhaps in an altar. Tunnels? Lewis knitted his brows in perplexity. Wherever am I being sent? West Wickham, said Nennius, with just a trace of malicious amusement, to the estate of Baron Le Despenser. Ah, said Lewis politely, lifting another forkful of flaky pastry crust. That would be Baron Le Despenser, Sir Francis Dashwood, said Nennius. The bit of pie fell off of Lewis's fork. I beg your pardon, he stammered. Looking around hastily, he leaned forward and lowered his voice. Surely you don't mean that fellow with the, um... Notorious Hellfire Club, I'm afraid I do, yes. <laughs> but I'm a literature preservation specialist, said Lewis. So I understand. And Dashwood has one of the most extensive libraries of pornography, both ancient and modern, in the world. I know of some operatives who'd positively leap at the chance to have a peek of it. <laughs> you ought to have ample time while you're searching for the scroll, which is something entirely different, by the way. It may or may not contain an account of the rituals performed during the Eleusinian Mysteries. But we know all about the Eleusinian Mysteries, said Lewis. I attended them myself and managed to record them, I might add. Yes, but your old holiday holler shots aren't the sort of thing the company can sell to wealthy collectors. He's expecting you on the 15th. You'll do famously, I'm quite sure. Good day, sir. You'll excuse me, I trust. I have an engagement at the Cocoa Tree. He rose took up a silver-headed walking stick and strolled out, leaving Lewis with the cheque. In the dim grey hours of the 15th of the month, Lewis stepped down from the coach, caught his valise as the coachman threw it down to him and looked blearily around at High Wickham. Its appearance lived up to its reputation as the capital of the British chair manufacturing industry. There was a tavern that looked as though its interior was dark-panelled, low-beamed and full of jostling upholsterers clutching leathern jacks of ale. It did not look as though it might be open and serving breakfast, however. Lewis sighed and started the trudge to West Wickham. In spite of his worries, his spirits rose as he went along. The road was good, free of mud holes, the country rolling and wooded, beautiful in the brightening air. The dawn chorus of birds began. When the sun rose at last, it struck an answering gleam from a curious feature high on a hill, what appeared to be the steeple of a church, surmounted not with a cross, but with a golden ball, like an echo of the sun itself. 
How charmingly neoclassical, Lewis thought to himself, and was surprised, on accessing his database of local information, to discover that it was in fact St Lawrence's Church and had been restored and improved by Sir Francis Dashwood himself. The birds sang on. The autumn meadows were full of gambling hares and fleecy sheep and the occasional prosperous and happy-looking shepherd. Rose brambles were bright with scarlet fruit. When the great house came into view at last, that too was all sunlight and peace, a great Palladian mansion of golden stone, trimmed with white. Lewis scanned the countryside for conspicuous and suspicious-looking altars, standing stones, or at least a wicker man or two. There weren't any. No black hounds watched him from behind trees either. Only, as he entered the park and started down the wide, pleasant drive, an elderly pug, limping out on its solitary business, stopped to regard him. It coughed at him in a querulous sort of way and then lost interest in him and wandered on through the drifts of fallen leaves. At the end of the drive, Lewis came to the tremendous entrance portico, Greek revival, looking strangely comfortable in its setting. Within, like an immense lawn jockey, a statue of Bacchus towered beside the door. Bacchus looked too comfortable, Lewis smiled nervously up at him, and he knocked. He gazed about as he waited for someone to open the door. There were panels painted with representations of scenes from classical literature, including one of Bacchus crowning Ariadne. Lewis was studying it, with his head craned back, mouth agape, when the door was abruptly opened. He looked down and found himself being regarded by an elderly gentleman, far too well dressed to be a butler. "'You're not the postman,' he said. Uh, "'No, sir. Your servant, sir,' Lewis removed his hat and bowed. "'Lewis Owens, is Lord Le Dispenser within?' "'Yes,' said the gentleman. "'Owens, you'd be librarian?' "'I hope to be, sir,' said Lewis, drawing forth and offering his letter of introduction. The gentleman looked at it and waved him within in an absent-minded way as he broke the seal and perused the letter's contents. Lewis slid past him and set down his valise in the great hall. He scanned, but was unable to pick up any currents of mortal agitation, only a droning like a well-run beehive and fragments of mortal thought. Just get them geraniums potted. It doesn't hurt quite so much now. I shall be better presently. He asked for jugged hair special, and here you've gone and used up all the... Damn! However shall I get that grease spot out? I could quite fancy a cup of chocolate just now. See, he put all his money in barley figures, but... Lewis tended to become enthralled by mortal dramas, however ordinary, so he was startled from his reverie when the gentleman said, without warning, Vilia Merita Vulcus, Mithi Flavors Apollo. Popular Castalia Plena Ministret Aqua, responded Lewis automatically. The old gentleman smiled at him. "'I see your patron is not mistaken in you. "'My apologies, young man. "'The last candidate Sir Francis considered for the post "'was something of an impostor. "'Paul Whitehead, sir, at your service.' "'Whitehead, the author of Manners and other celebrated satires,' "'Lewis cried, bowing. "'Oh, sir, what an honour!' "'They were interrupted at this moment by the butler hurrying in, "'hastily rearranging his cravat. "'I beg your pardon, Mr Whitehead, so sorry. "'Is the gentleman a friend?' "'I think he'd likely,' said Mr Whitehead, looking dazed. "'You have, in fact, read something of mine? "'Good 
God, sir, <laughs> I thought myself quite forgotten. He drew breath to laugh and coughed instead, a hard, racking cough. John hurried forward to take his arm, but he held up his hand. I'm quite all right. Never mind, John. Come along, Mr. Owens. Sir Francis will be delighted to see you. He led Lewis through splendid rooms, all done in a rather old-fashioned Italian Renaissance style, and perhaps with too many statues to be in the best of taste. "'My understanding was the library was in some disarray,' said Lewis delicately. "'Well, it ought to be properly catalogued,' said Mr Whitehead. "'We never got round to it. Uh, "'Now that so many of the books from Medmenham have been conveyed over here, uh, "'why, it's in a sad condition.' Uh, that would be the uh, famous abbey of the monks of St Francis of Wickham. <laughs> the old man rolled his eyes. Famous, is it? Yes, I dare say. For a secret society, we've had an extraordinary number of tattlers. Not that any of them are up to much lechery nowadays, but there it is. <laughs> In the days of my youth, I could build like a dove. Tra-la-la. They emerged from the house into wide green garden acreage in which the neoclassical theme continued. Temples, arches and yet more statues crowded around a lake. In the near foreground, however, a small and somewhat wobbly-looking pavilion of pink silk had been pitched on the lawn. As they approached it, Lewis heard a man's voice crying, "'I shouldn't do it, Francis. You'll almost certainly have your left hand cut off by the Grand Turk.' Bad Francis, said a child's voice. I believe you've found your librarian, Francis, said Mr Whitehouse, leading Lewis round to the front of the pavilion. Inside, seated on a Turkish carpet, were two tiny children, a dish of quartered oranges and sweetmeats, and a man in late middle age. He wore a white dressing gown and a turban. What? he said. Oh, pray excuse me. We're being Arabs. Uh, quite all right, said Lewis. "'May I present Mr Lewis Owens, Sir Francis?' Uh, "'Mr Owens, Lord Le Dispenser, Sir Francis Dashwood.' Further introduction was delayed at this point, because the little boy lunged for the sweetmeats and crammed a fistful of them in his mouth, quick as lightning, occasioning the little girl to scream shrilly, "'Papa, he went and done it after all!' And "'May I present my children, Francis and Frances Dashwood?' Sir Francis clapped twice, and a nurse came from the portico. I named them all after me. So like the Roman custom, don't you think? Take them back to the harem, Mrs Willis. Fanny, remember your manners. What was me do when we meet infidel gentlemen? The little girl drew a curtain over her head, then rose to her feet and made an unsteady curtsy. The nurse scooped up the baby, levered the goo ball of sweets out of his mouth with a practised hand, and bore him away, despite his screams of rage. The little girl followed her, tripping only once on the trailing curtain. "'Won't you sit down, Mr Owens?' indicating the carpet beside him. Mr White had already gone to the portico and fetched himself a garden chair. "'With gratitude, sir,' said Lewis, crawling awkwardly into the tent. Sir Francis offered him the dish, and he helped himself to an orange quarter. Seen close to, Sir Francis looked nothing like a notorious rake and blasphemer. He had a good-natured face with shrewd eyes and none of the bloated fogginess of the habitual drinker. "'Here's his letter,' said Mr Whitehead, handing it to Sir Francis, who held it out at arm's length and peered at it. 
Right, I will come to as highly recommended, he said after a moment. It would appear you are quite the scholar. Dr. Franklin is too kind, said Lewis, doing his best to look abashed. And you've done some experience restoring old papers. Oh, that's an excellent thing for you now. Some of my libraries exceeding rare and, like mortal fresh, plain to crumble with age. Sir Francis tucked the letter into his pocket and gave Lewis a sidelong look. I suppose you were advised <laughs> as to his nature. Uh, oh, yes, yes, my lord, I was. I don't imagine you're a prudish young fellow. Frankly, would scarcely have said you if you inclined that way. <laughs> Mr. Williams was a sad disappointment. Yes, indeed. Let's hope his success affairs better. <laughs> Sir Francis took up a piece of orange and bit into it. I expect you've heard stories, of course. Uh, yes. <laughs> Most of them are the wildest exaggeration. Yet we've had some rare times in our day, Paul, have we not? <laughs> good food, good drink, good company. <laughs> Taste the sweets of life, my boy, while you're able to, for all too soon we fade like summer flowers. Too soon indeed, said Mr. Whitehead with a sigh. Albeit oh, a firm belief in eternal life in the hereafter is a great comfort. Oh, quite so. Still, we're not entirely with it yet, eh? I was thinking only the other evening we really ought to have another chapter meeting with some of our brother monks. He winked broadly at Lewis. Mm, quite a bit of fun, and really nothing of which to be ashamed. Paul knows of a respectable house with the most agreeable good-natured girls, charm us all, discreet, free of the pox, but with a certain amount of uh, intellectual furniture, you know. <laughs> ah, like the heteri of ancient Greece, Lois inquired. Exactly. <laughs> Just so. After all, in men of our years, good conversation hath his virtue, too. Not that I expect a young man to believe me. <laughs> he popped a sweetmeat in his mouth and crawled out of the tent on hands and knees. Come along, he said briskly. We'll show you the library. Lewis found himself employed. It couldn't have been easier. He had a pleasant room, was free to keep his own hours, and had a place at Sir Francis' table. On his second evening in residence, he had a difficult encounter with a dish of syllabub that proved to contain gooseberries, but managed to ignore the flashing lights and keep smiling at his host's witticisms and the library was a treasure trove. It was true that it consisted a great deal of erotica, inclining to the eclectic rather than the perverse. Lewis found a splendid copy of the earliest translation into English of the Kama Sutra, and the library certainly needed putting into order. Gulliver's travels jostled for shelf space with books on the Kabbalah, or on architecture, or Fox's Book of Martyrs, or Ovid's Amores. There were indeed a couple of fairly ancient scrolls and codices, a second-century copy of Euripides' The Bacchae, and a copy of Aristophanes' The Frogs that was nearly as old. There were a few fakes, too. Most notably a work on alchemy purporting to have been written by Aristotle. These were well done, clearly by someone who had access to a cache of very old papyrus and knew a few tricks for compounding period formula inks. Lewis recognised the hand of a certain forger active in the last century who had worked from the Eugenicus manuscripts. This unknown Russian was quite a celebrity in the faked document trade. Lewis, noting that Sir Francis had travelled to Russia in his youth, suspected he might have been sold a number of phonies from the same artist. 
At the end of a week, he sat down at his artfully concealed field credenza and sent the message, Dashwood mission success so far. Stop. Have gained access to library. Stop. Much to interest company investors. Will require two drums per pyro fix and one of parch fix kindly shipped by earliest post. Stop. However, no sign of, quote, Eleusinian mystery scroll, unquote. No sign of pagan orgies yet. Stop. No orgies of any kind, comma, in fact, stop. Suggest informant mistaken? After an hour... The reply came back. Papyrofix and Parchfix have shipped. Stop. Look harder, Lewis. Stop. This is excellent bacon, my lord, said Lewis at the breakfast table. <coughs> Sir Francis looked up from watching the nurse attempting to feed his offspring porridge. Ah, <gasps> oh, good pigs hereabout. Lewis wondered how to gracefully transition from pigs to the subject at hand and couldn't think of a way. I wondered, my lord, whether, since it is the Sabbath, I might not have the day to walk in the gardens, he said. Roger, by all means, my dear boy. Yes, said Francis. You'll enjoy that. The man of classical education will find much to engage his attention, he added, winking so broadly that his little daughter was fascinated, and sat there at table practising outrageous winks until her nurse quelled her with a deadly look. Lewis slipped forth after breakfast and had hoped to spend a profitable day spying out likely places where a scroll might be hidden. But he had got no further than the Temple of Venus when Sir Francis popped out of a folly. There you are. It occurred to me that you benefit from a guide. There's rather a lot to see. You're too kind, my lord, said Lewis, concealing his irritation. Oh, not at all, not at all. Well, the Temple of Venus, note the statue, sir. Which one? Lewis inquired politely. Therefore, there were before him nearly thirty figures decorating the slope up to the temple, among the bright fallen leaves, boys bearing shields, various smaller figures of fauns, nymphs, cherubs, and what looked suspiciously like a contingent of garden gnomes. Venus herself, said Sir Francis, leading the way up the hill. The one actually in the temple, you see. Regard the rather better execution than in all the little figures. I got those at a bargain price, though, by God. Someone's plaster cast in Genoa had gone bankrupt and was closing out in stock. <laughs> sure, this is a copy of the Venus de Medici. Rather fine, don't you think? Profoundly so, said Lewis, wondering whether Sir Francis was guiding him away from something. So Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Francis stepped back and swung his hand up to point at the dome of the temple. And there, see, look closely. It's a little hard to make out at this angle, but that's Leader and Jove in the guise of a swan. Oh, well, she, um, certainly looks happy. I think the sculpture caught perfectly the combination of ecstatic convulsion and divine regarding reverie. Pity we can't have it down here, where we might be better viewed, but, well, perhaps better not. Awkward to explain to the children. I expect it would be, yes. And down here, we put Venus's parlour. That one represents Mercury, you see. Rather an ironic reminder to an incautious youth. Observe the many elegant references to sweet Venus portal of bliss, or as some have come to call it, the uh, gate of life itself, <laughs> whence we all come. <laughs> how, um, how evocative, my lord, said Lewis, stammering rather. And that yonder is a temple to the nymph Daphne. Yes, must have the laurels trimmed back somewhat, so as to disclose it with more art. <laughs> I put that in during my druidical days. I beg your pardon. I was going to worship trees once. <laughs> Applied to Stukeley, the, uh, the head druid, you know, <laughs> for initiation and all that. Got a charter to start up a grove, as it happened. But then he grew vexed with me and withdrew it. No sense of humour, those fellows. <laughs> Not the 18th century ones, at any rate. And I don't know that I see much to worship in mere trees, in any case. They're not good company, eh? He nudged Lewis. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the Freemasons. Always did my best to behave with them, but upon my soul I couldn't give a straight face. <laughs> I trust I give no offence, sir. Uh, oh, none, I assure you. I suppose I ought to have inquired whether you were a Christian. I, I frankly own myself a pagan, confided Lewis, uh, though I have Christian friends. <gasps> oh, I too. I never mock Christ himself, you know. It's the institution I can't abide. Loathsome, cruel, sanctimonious, greedy little hypocrites. But regard my little church up there on the hill. What do you think of that, sir, eh? Hey? I did wonder what the golden ball was for. It represents the sun. To my mind, much the more appropriate symbol for the light of the world, wouldn't you say? But certain folk took umbrage, of course, though I expect I only made things worse by having drinking parties up there, for I had it built hollow, you know, with, with seats inside. Yes, I slipped and nearly broke my neck climbing down out of it. Yes, dear, dear. Still, you should have seen the vicar's expression. They walked on a little, and Sir Francis pointed out the lake with its swans and authentic fleet of small ships, useful for mock sea battles at parties. The last time a fire broke out, a burning wadding flew everywhere, though we haven't fired the cannons in years. On an island in the centre of the lake was another folly, and yet more statues. Looks rather like the Temple of Vesta in Rome, Lewis observed. Hastily, he added, at least it might have looked before it became a ruin. 
Oh, you saw that, did you? <laughs> Very good. That was my intent, you know. You are a scholar, sir. I sketched the ruins myself once. Dearly loved classical Rome when I was a young man. Still think its religion was quite the most sensible men have ever made for themselves. You know, I thought that too. Have you? Their gods are so like us, you know. Ordinary people with faults and family quarrels. Some of them quite dreadful, but others rather endearing. Much more likely to have made this dirty, silly world than some remote perfection in Vitha, wouldn't you say? <laughs> "'It always seemed that way to me,' said Lewis, "'thinking wistfully of his human ancestry. "'He considered Sir Francis and decided to cast out a hook. "'Of course, there wasn't much prospect of an afterlife "'for mere mortals in antiquity.' Oh, "'Not so,' said Sir Francis. Oh, "'What would you make of the Eleusinian mysteries, then?' "'Lewis drew a deep breath and thanked Mercury, god of schemers. Hmm. "'Well... What can one make, my lord? The Eleusinian rites are unknown because their initiates were sworn to secrecy, he said. Ha! <laughs> I can tell you half much an oath of secrecy is worth, said Sir Francis, shaking his head. Depend upon it, my young friend. People blabbed. Life everlasting was offered to mortals long before St Paul and his cronies claimed the idea. <laughs> True enough, thought Lewis, reflecting on the company's immortality process. Uh, so it's rumoured, my lord, uh, but alas, we've not a shred of proof for that, have we? <gasps> That's as may be. If I were to tell you that the certain sacred groves in Italy where satyrs yet dance, you'd think me mad. Yet I have seen something pretty near to them. Aye, and nymphs too. Lewis did his best to look like a man of the world. Well, I could name you a nymph or two here in England, if it comes to that, he said, attempting a nudge and wink. Sir Francis clapped him on the back. I dare say you could. Yes, we really must have another chapter meeting. I'll sponsor you, if you like. <laughs> oh, sir, what a kindness. Not at all. We need some young blood in our ranks. I'll send to Twickenham for Whitehead. He'll arrange it. Lewis looked at the box of fragments and shook his head sadly. The pornographic papyrus was in shocking condition, nearly as bad as some of the Dead Sea Scrolls would be, though this damage seemed due to recent abuse of some kind. Worse still, some of the little bits were gummed together with something, and it wasn't gooseberry jam. Lewis had begun to have a queasy notion as to the circumstances of his immediate predecessor's departure. "'Well, let's see if we can't put things right,' he muttered to himself and set out the larger pieces. Three nymphs, five satyrs, and hmm, possibly a horse, uh, and a flute player, and a lot of bunches of grapes, three sets of unattached um, bits, the part of a duck. Frowning, the tip of his tongue between his teeth in intense concentration, Lewis sorted through all the fragments of wildly posturing limbs. With the cyborg's speed in analysis, he began to assemble the bits of the puzzle. There, and he goes there, and she goes there, and... Uh, no, that doesn't look anatomically possible, does it? Ah, but if this leg goes up this way... Uh, no, that's an elbow. Oh, it's a centaur. Well, that makes much more sense. Silly me. 
the door to the library opened, admitting a draught and Sir Francis. Lewis spread out his hands to prevent the reassembled orgy scene from sailing across the desktop. <gasps> oh, there you are, Owens. He sounded a trifle hesitant. Lewis looked up at him sharply, but he didn't meet Lewis's gaze. Instead, he kept his eyes on the papyrus as he approached. Well, um, <coughs> what a splendid job you're doing. A deplorable state that one was in. They should have seen to this ages ago, I suppose. But then, I've been busy these last years bringing myrtles to Venus myself, rather than reading about other people doing it, eh? <laughs> a very wise, my lord. He pulled out a chair and sat at the table, looking on in silence a moment as Lewis went back to fitting fragments together. Ooh, uh, I remember acquiring that one as they were yesterday. I was seeing Naxos. My guide was a shrewd young man. You could trust him to find you absolutely anything. Girls, fair or dark, plump or slender, whatever your mood. And the very best houses for drinking, you know, whether you wanted wine or stronger spirits. If you wanted to see temples, you could find those, too. But I had to mention that I was interested in antiquities, and by God, he showed me... <laughs> "'A certain shop?' said Lewis, carefully applying the papyro fix from a plain jar with a tiny brush. He fitted the two fragments together. They reunited so perfectly it would have been impossible to say that they had been sundered. "'A dark little place down a winding street?' "'Look at that! Oh, I declare so, I'm a physician of books. Oh, but no, it wasn't such a shop. I've seen those places. They're all too eager to snare a young fool on his first grand tour and sell him Homer's very lyre and Caesar's own laurels to boot. All impostures, you may be certain. No, this was another sort of place entirely. Lois was silent, waiting for him to continue. He looked up and saw Sir Francis gazing out of the window where the autumn forest showed now black branches through the drifting red and gold. The man led me up a mountainside, a mountain of golden stone, only thinly greened over with little gnarled holmoaks, and with some sort of herb that gave off an aromatic perfume in the sunlight. Oh, and what sunlight! "'White as diamond, clear and hot, the sunlight of the very morning of the world, <laughs> "'transparent hair and the dome of blue overhead so deep a man could drown in it. <laughs> uh, "'Well, the path was less than a goat path, and we climbed for the best part of an hour "'or through the thorns half the time. Oh, how I cursed the fellow!' He kept pointing out a little white house far up the mountainside, lonely and abandoned-looking. But I followed him, very surly indeed, as you may imagine, by the time we'd gained the house at last. Now there it was a little better. There was a great old fig tree that cast pleasant shade. I threw myself down in the coolness and panted, and an eagle sailed past at eye-level, sir. Hmm? "'and the sea so far below that nothing but a blue mist "'with little atomies of ships flying to and fro. "'I could hear murmuring coming from the house, "'but no other noises at all, not so much as a cry of a bird. "'And the drone of the insects had ceased. "'It was all very like a dream, you know, "'and it became more so when I got to my feet and went inside. "'There, in the cool and dark, a row of antique faces regarded me. And "'They were only the heads of statues that had been arranged along a shelf, but upon my life I took them for persons at first, perhaps interrupted in conversation. 
My guide introduced the old man and his daughter. He'd been a scholar, evidently, dug amongst the ruins and through forgotten places to amass his collection, penniless now and selling off the better pieces where he could find buyers. She was a beauty, very Greek, grey-eyed and proud. It brought me a cup of cold water with all the grace of Hebe. Well, we commenced to do business. I'd a rather well-lined purse. Stupid thing to carry in such country, of course. But some god or other protects young idiots from harm. Well, he sold me the scrolls at once. His daughter brought out a few painted urns, very fine some of them, and I bought one or two. I had my man ask if there were any more. They talked that over between them, the father and his girl, and at last she signed for us to follow her. "'We went out through the back of the house. "'There was a spring trickling from the rock "'and a sort of pergola joining the back of the house to a grotto there. "'It was all deep in vine shade with little green grapes hanging down. "'Blessedly refreshing. "'That Archean charmer led me back into the shadows, "'and I was upon point of seeing whether I might coax a kiss from her when there— "'On my life and honour, sir, I tell you, I looked on the face of God.' "'What did you see?' Lois was enthralled. "'I think you must have been a little temple once. "'It certainly felt sacred to me. "'There were figures carved at the back of the grotto into the living rock. "'Bacchus, with all his train of satyrs and nymphs, "'coming to the rescue of Ariadne.' Primitive, I tell you, sir. The artist uh, could do faces, though. I tell you, the revellers were so jolly. You wanted to laugh with them. And, oh, the young divinity, immortal and human all at once, smiling so kindly on that poor girl, seduced and deserted on her island, holding out his hand to save her, and, in his compassion, granting her the golden crown of eternal life. It was a revelation, sir. That's what a god ought to be, I said to myself. Wild joy in flesh and blood, and being flesh and blood, generous enough to preserve we wretched mortals from death's affliction. I was desperate to buy the panel, but it wasn't to be had. No, indeed, no. The girl had brought me in there simply to show me a few some, some small bronzes stacked on the floor for want of room in the cottage. I sought by gestures to convey I wished to break the figures free of the wall. She understood well enough and favoured me with a look that nearly froze my blood. You'll think me a booby, sir, but I wept. Oh. I never close my eyes at night, but I see that grotto still. I've had the god's likeness made many times by some tolerably good painters, and bought me several images of him, yet none can compare with his countenance I saw on that bright morning in my youth. And I cannot but believe that, for a free moment on that morning, I escaped this world's confines and walked in the realm of the ineffable. An enchanting story, my lord. Lewis looked down at the bits of paper before him, fragments of some long-dead mortal's imagination. Mm. How different their perception is from ours. How I wish. Not the story I came here to tell, alas. Mm. The past rules the present when you reach my age. You'll understand in your time, my boy. I, um... "'I haven't been quite able to arrange the party. 
Not the initiation party into the order, in any case. Uh, Paul's been ill, and our dear friend Dr. Franklin sends his regrets, but he's otherwise engaged. Uh, still trying to salvage something from this calamity with the Americans, I've no doubt. I quite understand, said Lewis. And Butte's been taken up with his gardening now. Montague said word he'd certainly come, but for the entertainment he owes his guest. Oh, you've heard of, oh my, the wild South Seas fellow. Hmm? Captain Cook brought him back for show, and he's been fated in all the best homes. I said, bring him with you. We'll initiate a noble savage. But it seems his time's all bespoke with garden parties. Well, you see how it is. Quite, said Lois. Perhaps another time, then. Oh, indeed. In point of fact, sir. Sir Francis turned his head to peer at the doorway, and then turned back and spoke with a lowered voice. I had contemplated something else. A rather more exclusive affair entirely. We haven't had one in a while, but now and again the need presents itself. And you being such an agreeable pagan, I thought... Lois, scarcely believing his luck, put down the brush and leaned forward. This wouldn't have... "'Anything to do with a certain mystery we spoke of in the garden, would it?' "'Yes, yes. Oh, you understand? Mm? "'I believe I do, my lord. Trust me, you can count on my discretion.' "'Setting a finger beside his nose. "'Oh, good. Although you know.' "'Sir Francis leaned in and spoke so low that if he hadn't been a cyborg, "'Lewis couldn't have made out what he was saying. "'It won't be quite as um, jolly as the services at the Abbey.' Perhaps we'll have a little dinner party first, mm -hmm. just to warm things up, and then things will be rather solemn. I hope you won't be disappointed. I'm sure I shan't be. When Sir Francis had left, after several winks, nudges, and hoarse declarations of the need for utter secrecy, Lewis jumped up and did a buck and wing down the length of the library. There were certain comings and goings over the next week, nothing to indicate anything out of the ordinary to the unsuspecting observer, but significant. Sir Francis packed his present mistress, the children and their nurses, off to Bath, with a great many sloppy kisses and endearments. Guests arrived at odd hours. Sir Francis's half-brother John and another elderly gentleman, who turned out to be a Regis Professor of Civil Law. Lewis placidly piecing together ancient carnal acrobatics, scanned the household as he worked and picked up more snippets of information. He learned that the seamstress had been given a great deal of last-minute work to do because someone's costume hadn't been tried out in three years and didn't fit any more. A young pig was driven over from an outlying farm and made a nasty mess in the kitchen garden, about which the cook complained. And then Sir Francis himself went down and slaughtered it somewhat inexpertly judging from the noise and the complaints of the laundress who had to get the blood out of his garments. The gardener was sent off with a shovel and wheelbarrow and was gone all day and grumbled when he returned. The footman and butler loaded a table and several chairs into a wagon and drove them away somewhere. Lewis was applying parch-fix to a codex purporting to tell the secrets of the Vestal Virgins when he heard the trumpets announcing a coach's arrival. He scanned, yes, a coach was coming up the drive containing five, no, six mortals. He set the brush down and closed his eyes, the better to focus. 
jingling ring of metal-shod wheels on gravel with dreadful tooth-grinding clarity, the hollow thunder of the horse's hooves slowing to a distinct clop, 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 like the final drops in a rain shower, counterpointed by the slippered feet crossing the marble floor of the entry hall in the house below. Boom! Sir Francis seemed incapable of using a door without flinging it wide. Ladies, ladies, my charmers, my beauties, welcome, welcome, one and all. Dear Mrs. Deeper, it's been an age. How do you do? By Venus and her son, my dear, you're looking well. Allah bless you, my lord, and ain't you the only tongue flatterer? Never in the world, sweetheart, Suki. Pretty Bess, my arm, ladies, pray step down. Mind your gown there. Welcome once again. Ah, Joan, you did come after all. We've missed you sorely. A kiss for thee, my love. And who's this? A new rose in the bouquet. That's our young miss. Ain't been with us long. We reckon she'd do for... And here the voice dropped to a whisper, but Lewis made it out. For uh, you know who? Oh! Sir Francis likewise resorted to an undertone. Then a chaste kiss for you, fair child. Welcome. Where's Mr. Whitehead? I'm just getting the hat. A world in your ear, my lord. He ain't well. Had a fainting fit and fright is something awful. Suki brought him round with a little gin, but he's that pale. <gasps> I know, I know, my dear, but ah, there you are, Paul. What a rascal you are. Swiving yourself into collapse with a carriage full of beauties, eh? I declare, you're like a spawning salmon. Couldn't wait till tonight, could you? Here then, dearie, you just take my arm. No, what nonsense! I'm perfectly well. Bess, you take his other arm. Uh, come on now, lovey, we'll just go inside for a bit of lie down before dinner, won't we? Uh, perhaps that would be best. Let's give this rampant stallion a rest before the next jump. Uh, John, uh, have Mrs. Fitton send up a restorative. At once, my lord. The voices, louder now because everyone had come indoors, but more muffled and indistinct. Lewis pushed back from the table and tilted his head this way and that until he could pick up sounds clearly once more. There was Sir Francis, whispering again. Looks dreadful, poor creature. We ought to have done this sooner. He looked well enough this fortnight past when he was down to London. My sister's husband, he'd he just done the same. Sound as a bell at Christmas and we'd buried him at twelfth night. Well, we must hope for the best. Uh, that's what my mother used to say, my lord. What do you think of the girl? A little obscured by the veil, but she seems a pretty creature. She's observed all the, um... Yes, my lord, yeah, you may be sure of that. Uh, and you have a boy? A capital boy. <laughs> you shall meet him presently. Oh, good, because I didn't care for the other young gentleman at all. Lewis sneezed, breaking his focus and sending a bit of Vestal Virgin flying. Drat, he muttered. He got down on hands and knees to retrieve her from under the table and wondered once again, as he did so, just what exactly had happened to his predecessor. Any unease he might have felt, however, was being rapidly overpowered by a certain sense of hopeful anticipation. A dinner party composed entirely, almost, of old men and nubile and willing ladies. Was it possible his perpetual bad luck was about to change, if only for an evening's bliss? Lewis had repaired the Vestal Virgins and was busily pasting the spine back on a copy of A New Description of Maryland when Sir Francis's butler entered the library, bearing a cloak draped over his arm. 
I beg your pardon, sir, but my lord requests your presence in the garden. You, you are to wear this. He held up the cloak, which had a capacious hood. Ah, fancy dress party, is it? Lewis took the cloak and slung it around his shoulders. The hood fell forward, blinding him. John, unsmiling, adjusted it. If you say so, sir, uh, you want to go out by the east door. Right ho, I'm on my way, said Lewis, and trooped off with an eager heart. In the garden, he encountered a huddle of other cloaked figures and was greeted by the foremost of them, who, in speaking, revealed himself as Sir Francis. That you, young Owens? We're just waiting for the ladies, bless them. Ah, they approach. Indeed, a procession was winding its way around the side of the house. Lewis saw five cloaked figures, and the foremost carried a torch held high. The gentlemen bowed deeply. Lewis followed suit. Goddess, said Sir Francis, we mortals greet you with reverence and longing. Pray grant us your favour. My favour thou shalt have, mortal, said she of the blazing torch. Come with me to yon loud shrine, and I shall teach ye my holy mystery. Say, said the old Regis professor under his breath. He gave Lewis a gleeful dig in the ribs. His elbow was rather sharp, and Lewis found it quite painful. All discomfort fled, however, when a little cloaked figure came and took his hand. They paired up, a lady to each gentleman. Sir Francis took the arm of the torchbearer and led them away through the night in solemn procession, like a troop of elderly Guy Fawkes pranksters. The line broke only once when one of the gentlemen stumbled and began to cough. They stopped and waited until he recovered himself and then moved on. Lewis, checking briefly by infrared, saw that the procession was moving in the general direction of the high hill crowned by the Church of the Golden Ball. Most of his attention was turned on the girl who walked beside him. Her hand was warm, she was young and shapely, and walked with a light step. He wondered what she looked like. The procession did not climb the hill, but wound around its base. Presently, Lewis was able to drag his attention away from the girl long enough to observe another church that lay straight ahead of them, seemingly dug into the hill. As they drew closer, he saw that it was only a facade of flint built to conceal the entrance to a tunnel. The famous Hellfire Caves, thought Lewis, and his heartbeat quickened. They entered through the gates to a long tunnel cut through chalk, and here they must go single file. To his amazement, Lewis felt his racing heart speed into a full-blown panic attack. It was all he could do not to break from the line and run. He scanned the strata above his head, wet chalk, fractured and unstable. Plenty of rational reasons to fear this place, no need to summon demons from the unconscious. The little girl reached forward and gave his hand a squeeze. It made him feel better. They followed the tunnel gradually downhill, past niches opening off to the left, and then around in a loop that seemed to have taken them in a complete circle. It was black as pitch, but for the torch flaring ahead of them, and silent and damp and cold as the grave. Another long, straight descent, then a tight maze of turns and multiple openings where anyone but a cyborg might have had difficulty keeping a sense of direction. But now light showed ahead, down a straight passage, and Lewis picked up the scent of food. They emerged into a great open chamber, well lit by flaring torches. 
four figures stood perfectly motionless against the far wall. Each was draped in a black veil that dropped from the crown of the head nearly to the floor in long straight lines. Each wore a mask. Two were black and featureless. Two were painted in black and gold, resembling insect faces. In the centre of the room, looking incongruous, was a dining table set for ten. Sir Francis's voice boomed into the silence, shattering the tension with echoes. And now, a pause in our solemnities. Supper in hell, my friends. Though I promise you, you shall not be long tantalised. Tantalous, eh? In Hades. Did you get the joke? "'What a witty fellow you are, my lord, to be sure,' said the lady with the torch dryly. She drew back her hood to reveal a svelte woman in her early middle age. Her hair was a flaming and unnatural red. Painted, plastered and upholstered as she was, she was nonetheless maintained a certain charm. All the party now threw off their clothes, and Lewis blinked in surprise. The gentleman himself accepted, wore white jackets and pantaloons, as well as extraordinary floppy blue and red hats embroidered on the front with the words love and friendship. The ladies wore white robes cut in what must have been intended as a Greek fashion, all save the youngest, who, like Lewis, wore ordinary street dress. Her features remained hidden by her veil, however. "'It's cold in here,' complained a buxom wench, somewhat past her prime. "'Why couldn't we have done this at the Abbey? "'It's ever so nice there. "'Remember the times we used to have?' "'I know, my dear, a thousand apologies,' said Sir Francis. "'But the Abbey's not so convenient as it was, I fear. Well, "'We ain't a-doing our sacred rites in no profane place, Suki Foster, "'so just you shut your cake hole,' reproved her mistress. "'She cast a somewhat anxious eye upon Sir Francis.' "'All the same, dearie. <clears throat> I hope um, I'll get a cushion to put under my bum this time. Uh, that water ain't half cold and hard. "'Everything has been seen to, my dear Demeter.' "'Very kind if I'm sure, Lord Hermes,' she replied. Gazing round the assembled party, she spotted Lewis. "'Here now! Is he the... "'Yes,' Sir Francis replied. "'Here's... "'Well, ain't you the pretty fellow?' Demeter pinched Lewis's cheek. Hmm? Uh, "'Might we perhaps sit?' said the old professor. "'My leg is positively throbbing after that march.' Uh, "'Yes, please,' said Whitehead lightly. Um, he looked sweating and sick, a ghastly contrast with his clownish attire. Lewis scanned him and winced. The mortal was terminally ill.' They shuffled to their places. To his disappointment, Lewis found himself seated far down the table from the little girl in the veil. The masked figures, who had been still as statues until now, came to life and served in eerie silence. A whole roast pig was brought from a side passage, as well as a dish of fruit sauce, loaves of barley bread and oysters. Chocolate was poured from silver urns. "'No wine,' said the professor in disappointment. Sir Francis and Madame Demeter gave him identical looks of disapproval, and he blushed and muttered, "'Oh, sorry, forgot.' Lewis, cold, hungry and depressed, took a reckless gulp of chocolate and at once felt the rush of threobromine elevating his spirits. They feasted. 
Perhaps to make up for the lack of alcoholic cheer, the mortal party became terrifically loud in riotous laughter and bawdy witticisms that made Lewis blush for the veiled girl. She sat in silence at her end of the table, except for once when she began to lift her veil and... Here, just you keep your face covered, said Madame Demeter. How the bloody hell am I supposed to eat anything? The girl demanded. You pushes the cloth forward and slips little bites under, right? Like you was a proper lady, explained Suki. That's how I done it when it was me. The girl said nothing more, but folded her arms in a monumental sulk. Lewis, well into his second cup of chocolate, and with his cyborg nervous system now definitely under the influence of threobromin, regarded her wistfully. He thought she looked enchanting. He wondered if he could rescue her from her degrading life. How to do it? Not enough money in the departmental budget. They'd all laugh at me anyway. But what if I went to one of the gambling houses? I could count cards. Prohibited, of course, but the facilitator class operatives do it all the time for extra pocket money. Nenius himself, in fact. Win enough to set her up with a shop or something? Oh, poor child. Have another slice of this excellent pork, my boy, roared Sir Francis, reaching across to slap meat on his plate. And you haven't tried the fruit sauce? It's sublime. Uh, thanks, Lewis shouted back, leaning out of the way as the servant buried the pork in dollops of fruit compote. He leaned back in, took up a spoon and began shoveling compote into his mouth, aware he needed to take in solid food. No sooner had he set the spoon down, however, than the red letters began to flash before his eyes with all the vividness of migraine distortion. Toxic response alert. Oh, God, Apollo, he groaned. Peering down at his plate, he made out one or two gooseberry seeds in the syrupy mess. When the flashing letters allowed him to see anything, what have I done to myself? He sat very still and waited for the flashing to stop, but it didn't seem to. Too late, he wondered, if the theobromine might have combined badly with whatever it was in the gooseberries to which his organic body objected. A judge, then, with what sense of dread, he heard the ping-ping-ping of spoon against water glass and the creaking chair as Sir Francis rose to his feet. <gasps> now, my dears, now, my esteemed brothers in revelry, let us put aside our jollity. Our sacred business begins. "'Huzzah!' shrieked the old professor. "'A little more decorum, sir, if you please,' said Madame Demeter. "'This is a solemn occasion, ain't it?' Uh, "'I'm sorry, my dear. It's my sense of enthusiasm.' Uh, "'Quite understandable, sir,' said Sir Francis. "'But we ought to remember that we have a new celebrant among us "'who, though but a youth, has shown a true spirit of, um, uh, Mr. Owens. "'You're quite all right.' Lewis opened his eyes to hold a revolving wheel of faces staring at him, peeping in and out between the flashing red letters. "'Quite,' he said, and gave what he hoped was a confident smile. The smile went on longer than he'd intended it to. He had the distinct impression it was turning into a leer and dripping down one side of his face. "'Oh, very well, then. I think we'll commence. Brothers and sisters, let us drink together from the cup that will bind us in immortality,' said Sir Francis. And Lewis was aware that a servant was stepping up behind him and leaning down to offer something. Blinking at it, he beheld a figured wine crater, a modern copy, showing backers rescuing Ariadne. He took it and drank. 
Mm. Water, barley, penny royal. A memory buried for 1,500 years floated up into his consciousness. Lewis tasted it again. <gasps> the kikion! he exclaimed rather more loudly than he'd meant to. And you've even got the formula right. Well done! In the absolute silence that followed, he became aware that everyone was staring at him. You idiot, Lewis, he thought, and meekly passed the crater to Sir Francis. All the others at table drank without speaking. When the empty crater had been placed in the centre of the table at last, Sir Francis cleared his throat. The time has come. Behold my seducious... This provoked a shrill giggle from the professor, quickly shushed by the ladies on either side of him. "'If you ain't going to take this seriously, you oughtn't be here,' said Bess severely. Lewis peered and made out that Sir Francis had produced a staff from somewhere and was holding it up. It was, in fact, a seducius, very nicely carved, and the twining serpent scales had been gilded and their eyes set with faceted stones that glittered in the torchlight. "'I speak now as Hermes, servant of Jove,' said Sir Francis. "'I but do his immortal will.' "'And I am Demeter, goddess of all that grows,' intoned the lady with a theatrical flourish. "'How weary I am after the bountiful harvest. "'I will sleep, I trust, in Jove. "'No arm shall come to my dear daughter Persephone, "'who wanders on Nyssa's flowery plain.' Sir Francis indicated to Lewis that he ought to rise. Lewis got up so hastily his chair fell backwards with a crash, and he was only prevented from going with it by the masked servant who steadied him. The veiled girl rose too and dragged from beside her chair a basket. "'I am Persephone, goddess of the spring,' she announced. "'Blimey, what a lovely great flower do I see. I shall pick it straight away.' Sir Francis took Lewis by the arm and led him to the dark mouth of another tunnel, opposite from the one by which they'd entered. Persephone followed on tiptoe, grabbing a torch from one of the wall sockets as she came. They went down the tunnel a few yards and stopped. Persephone drew a deep breath and screamed at the top of her lungs. Ow! What dark god is this who ravages me away from the light of the world? Ow! Help! Help! Will nobody hear my distress? Father Jove, where art thou? Quickly now, Sir Francis whispered, and they hurried on through the darkness around a corner, around another and another, deeper into the labyrinth, and Lewis heard water rushing somewhere ahead. They passed through another smaller chamber where there was a low stone altar. Lewis nearly fell over it, but Sir Francis caught him again, and the girl took his other arm. Somehow they made it into the next passage and shortly came out into another chamber. "'The river sticks," announced Sir Francis with a wave of his seducius. "'Hermes of the winged heels can conduct no farther. "'Away, he flits, he flies back to lofty Olympus,' "'throwing out his arms and springing into air "'with quite a remarkable balletic grace for a man of his age, "'even crossing his ankles before he came down "'and landing so lightly that his wig scarcely moved on his head, "'he turned and ran back up the passageway.' Lewis stood staring after him. The girl tugged on his sleeve. "'We're supposed to get in the boat,' she said. Lewis turned around to look. They stood on the edge of a dark stream that rushed through the cavern. On the farther shore was the entrance to yet another black passage. Before them was moored a quaint little boat. 
beautifully, if morbidly carved, with skulls and crossed bones painted in black and gold. Oh, said Lewis, yes, of course, but where's Charon? Oh, said Persephone, the, the ferryman, said Lewis, making punting motions. Oh, nobody told me nothing about no ferryman. I reckon you're supposed to get us across. Uh, right, yes, uh, in we go then, said Lewis, who was finding the red flashes subsiding somewhat, but in their place was an increasing urge to giggle. Uh, my hand, madam, yo heave ho and hoist the anchor. Here, are you all right? The girl squinted at him through her veil. Never better, fair Persephone, Lewis cast off and seized up the pole. He propelled them across with such a mighty surge that, bleeding Jesus, mister, look out, you'll... The boat ran aground, and Lewis toppled backward, falling with a tremendous splash into the dark water. He came up laughing hysterically as he dog-paddled towards the boat with his wig bobbing eerily in his wake. Oh, God, Apollo, I've drowned in the river Styx. Well, this is a first for me. Ah, but I wouldn't be mister, you know. The technical term is misties. Persephone struck her torch in a rock crevice, grabbed his collar and hauled him ashore. You've been drinking, ain't you? she said. Uh, no, actually, it's the drinking chocolate. It has an odd effect on our nervous systems. We cyber... I mean, Owens's, said Lewis, through chattering teeth, for the water had been like ice. Ow, your shoes will be ruined. And, and give me the bleeding pole. We've got to fish your wig out. Damn it, I ain't wearing this veil another minute, said Persephone, and tore it off. Lewis caught his breath. She was a very young girl, pale by the torchlight, but with roses in her cheeks. Her hair was red. Her eyes, rather than the blue or green one might expect, were black as the stream from which she'd pulled him. His heart, not the cyborg mechanism that pumped his blood, contracted painfully. Mendoza? he whispered. Who's that? Here, what's wrong? she demanded. You ain't going to be sick, are you? You look like you've seen a ghost. I, I you, you look like someone I knew. I, I must apologise. A throaty scream came echoing down the passage from the banqueting chamber. March! cried Madame Demeter in tones she had clearly picked up from watching Mr Garrick at Drury Lane. Oh, my child! She is quite a ravished way. Ow, somebody up quick. Wherever could she be? Bugger, said Persephone. We've got to go on. Come on, get up. You, you need a hand. But please, Lewis let her haul him to his feet. He stood swaying, wondering if she was an hallucination, and she struck the torch in his nerveless hand, retrieved his sopping wig and grabbed up the basket. She did not wait, but started ahead of him through the dark doorway. Coming to himself, he ran squelching after her. Only a few yards on, they emerged into the last chamber. Uh, there was no way to exit but the back the way they'd come. It was a small room, very cold and damp indeed, and empty but for a squarish stone object in the middle of the floor. There were some carvings on the side. Lewis recognised it for a Roman sarcophagus. Persephone sat down on it and began to rummage through the basket. You want to get out of those wet clothes, she advised. She held up one end of a length of white cloth. This ain't much, but at least it's dry. He stared at it in incomprehension, trying to clear his wits. She sighed, set the basket down, and began to unbutton his waistcoat. 
don't tell me you ain't drunk. Come on, old dear, we ain't got all night, she said. Oh, at them going on. I am Hecate. Oh, what rules the night? I know where your daughter got to, mistress Demeter. Pray, speak thou. Well, I hear this scream, see, and I says to all seeing Helios, Lord of the Sun, and I says to all seeing Helios, Lord of the Sun, I says, so whatever was that noise, sounded like a virgin pure being carried off, and Helios says, he says, oh, that was very specifically being ravished, it was that Lord Hades done it. Hey, never. Swear me, God, and she's gone to the other world to be queen of the dead. Oh, my child, almighty Jove, is there no remedy? Lewis stood nervously, letting the little girl peel off his soaked garments until she unfastened his trousers. I, uh, perhaps I'd better do that, he said, clutching at himself and backing away. Please yourself, she said, and matter-of-factly began to strip down. <gasps> Madam, be content, a male voice came echoing down the passageway. It is the wind of all seeing Jove. What? What hell is this? It shall not be. How they do go on, said Persephone. Lewis, hopping on one foot as he tried to get his breeches off, turned to answer and nearly fell over, for she had skinned out of her garments with the speed of frequent practice and stood unconcernedly brushing out her hair. He stared. She didn't seem to notice. Why then, sir, Evan shall learn a goddess may be wrathful too. I shall withhold my gracious bounty from the world. See if I don't. The green corn shall wither in the field, and mortal men may starve. They're getting louder, said Lewis. Oh dear, they're not coming in here, are they? Now, that's just as far as the room with the halter, said Persephone. Oh, this is the sacred grotto. Nothing in here but the sacred scroll. Lewis managed to get his breeches off. Clutching them to his lap, he shuffled crabwise to the basket, rummaging for something with which to clothe himself. He put on a voluminous length of gauze embroidered with flowers. "'That's mine, ducky,' said Persephone, sliding past him to take it. Her bare breast grazed his arm. He started so violently, he dropped the sodden bundle he'd been holding. Persephone looked down. Her eyes widened. "'Wander through the barren world, mourning the old time for my dearest daughter. Oh, the perfidity of Jove!' "'I'm sorry,' said Persephone. "'This ain't half awkward. "'Look, if we was any place else, I'd do you proper. "'You know, a nice-looking boy like you. "'I can't hear, though, on account it'd be sacrilege.' "'It would,' said Lewis, piteously. "'Here, while I rest a while amid this sheltering grove, "'and in the shape of someone's old wet nurse, I will appear. "'But soft, who approaches, wretched Demeter? "'I perceive they are the daughters of some king or other.' Why, who is this poor old thing that sits beside our washing well? Cheer up, good lady. You shall come home with us and nurse our young brother. Didn't his lordship explain? Persephone rolled her eyes. I thought you'd done this before. Oh, well. She pulled the embroidered shift over her head and yanked it down smartly to cover herself. Uh, Well... Yes, uh, but it was a long time ago, and um, his distress seemed to aggravate the toxic response alert. He squeezed his eyes tight shut and made an effort to sober up. Now I'm alone with the mortal babe. I will reward the kindness done to me. So, so, hey, presto, another pass through the flames, and it shall become immortal. Ah! 
Now, my good lady, you'll burn up my baby. Now look what you went and done, foolish mortal. The spill's broke. I can't do you, because I'm being queen of Havenus, Persephone explained, which would be adultery, see, on account of me being married to the Lord of the Dead and all. Do you preach clout up like a nice bloke, won't you? I know it don't seem fair. What with his lordship and that lot getting to fornicate like mad? But he's in aid of Mr Whitehead, you know. Oh, said Lewis, blinking back tears as she fastened his loincloth in place for him and then draped a white scarf over her hair. Poor old thing's dying. Ever such a nice gentleman he is. I wonder why the nice ones always dies on you. But this way you won't be scared, see? Build the temple to me and so my divine wrath shall be appeased. And nothing more, I shall grant eternal life to him as performs my sacred rites. We thank the merciful goddess. Now it becomes an exchange between the woman's voice and the chorus of male voices. What have you done? We have feasted. We drank the Kaikion. Fasted, Lewis corrected absently. What will you do next? We're taking something out. What will you do with it? We're going to put it in something else. Then come forward, mortals, and be the old sacred flame. Die in the fire of my embrace to live eternally. I'm just as glad I ain't got to watch this part, remarked Persephone, settling down on the tomb lid. Between you and me, Mrs Digby ain't so young as she was, and the thought of her on that halter with her knees up, it's enough to curl your hair, isn't it? I suppose so, said Lewis, sitting down beside her. Sounds of violent carnal merriment echoed down the passageway. Persephone twiddled her thumbs. So, uh... How do you learn all about the old gods and all that? she asked. Lewis stared into the darkness through a hazy royal of red letters and memories. I was a foundling baby, um, left in a blanket by a statue of Apollo, he said. In Aquisulis. Where's that? I, I mean Bath. It's in Bath. Um, I was raised by a... Lewis pondered how to explain a 24th century corporation with the ability to time travel and collect abandoned human children for the purpose of processing them into cyborg operatives. By a wealthy scholar with no particular religious views. But I always rather liked the idea of the gods of old Rome. Oh, fancy that, said Persephone. Mrs Digby, she learned of, of his lordship. Ever such a comfort for poor working girls, she always says. You... You shouldn't be doing this, said Lewis, taking her hand in his. You should have a better life. If I helped you, if I set you up in business or something. That's the liquor talking, dearie, said Persephone, not unkindly. Lord love us, you ain't nothing but a clerk. You ain't got the money. And you ain't such a bad life. Things as I class at Mrs Digby's, you know, much rather do that and be somebody's scullery maid. I'm so sorry, Lewis whispered. It's all right. It's what we're born to, ain't it? She said. She inclined her head to listen to the tumult coming from the altar chamber. I reckon it's time for the seed, then. From her basket, she produced a pomegranate and, digging into the rind with her thumbs, prized it open. She picked out a seed and crunched it. Lewis watched her hopelessly. She offered him the fruit. Have some? Yes, said Lewis. Yes, for you I will. He took a handful of ruby seeds and ate, and the bittersweet juice ran down his chin. She reached up a corner of her veil and wiped it clean. 
they huddled together for warmth there on the lid of the tomb. Go to it, Paul! Bravo, Whitehead, that's the spirit. Huzzah! That's it, lovey, that's the one. Oh, Lord, you laugh at this one, yeah, yeah. That's it, yeah. You, you just rest in my arms, my dear. There ain't nothing to be afraid of, yeah. Think about them sim fields. That's my darling. Yeah, that's my sweet gentleman, yeah. Up. Oh, ah, Whitehead's soul is to heaven fled. I hope they don't take all night, said Persephone, a little crossly. Blimey, I'm cold. She rummaged in her basket again and pulled out a flask. Unstoppering it, she had a gulp of its contents and sighed, wiping her mouth with the back of her hand. Nothing like a bit of this to take the chill off, she said, and passed the flask to Lewis. He drank without thinking and handed it back. Oh, he said, that was gin, wasn't it? Chants of rejoicing echoed down the tunnel. Eh? Course it was. Uh, I think our queue's coming up now. Oh, I'm afraid gin combines rather badly with theobromine, said Lewis unsteadily. With what? Persephone turned to face him. He watched in fascination as she became an equation of light and shadow, and then an image of stained glass shining with light. She was telling him something. She was rising and taking his hand, leaving trails of coloured light where she moved. He felt a gentle impact at the back of his head and a tremendous happiness. He was flying down the tunnel, bearing her along with him. The sundering water, rippling with subtle colours, was easily bounded across. He roared the ancient hymn as he came and heard the eternal masses echoing it back from paradise. Evohi, Evohi, Eachus, Evohi. He was in the cave with the altar, but it was full of light. It was glowing like summer, but no longer cold but warm i have taken in the seed and see what i bring into the light persephone declared the mortals knelt around him crowding close weeping and laughing and catching at his hands blessed iarchus give us hope iarchus the boy iarchus is come iarchus take away our fear make us immortal iarchus Demeter and Persephone were greeting each other with elaborate palms-out rapture, and Persephone was saying, "'Behold, my son, which is life come out of death!' "'Please, Iarchus!' he looked down into old Whitehead's pleading face, sweating and exhausted. "'Let me not be lost in the dark!' He wept for the mortal man. He touched his face and promised him the moon. He promised them all the moon. He babbled any comforting nonsense he could think of. He tried to stretch out his hand to Persephone, but she had receded somehow on the golden sea of faces. Everything was golden. Everything was melting into golden music. Lewis opened his eyes. He looked up. He looked down. He looked from side to side. Doing anything more ambitious than this seemed a bad idea. He was in bed in the room allotted to him by Sir Francis. Someone had laid him out as carefully as a carving of a saint on a tomb, with the counterpane drawn up to his chest. They had put one of his nightshirts on him too. It seemed to be morning. He closed his eyes again and ran a self-diagnostic. His body told him, quite pointedly, that he'd been extremely stupid. It implied that if he ever subjected it to that kind of abuse again, he was going to find himself in a regeneration tank for at least six months. 
it stated further that it required complex carbohydrates right now, as well as at least two litres of fluid containing high concentrations of calcium, magnesium and potassium. He opened his eyes again and looked around to see if anything answering that description was within reach. No. The nearest fluid was, of any kind, water on a table beside his bed in a crystal vase containing a few sprays of late hedge roses. It looked exquisitely wet. He wondered if he could get the roses out and drink from the vase without making too much of a mess. His body told him he didn't care whether he made a mess. Groaning, he prepared to sit up. At that moment, he heard approach of footsteps, two pairs. They were accompanied by a slight rattle of china. The door opened and Sir Francis stuck his head into the room. Seeing Lewis awake, his face brightened extraordinarily. <gasps> Mr. Owens, thank all the gods you're with us again at last. Uh, you are, um, that is, you, Mr. Owens? Oh, I think so, said Owens. Little lightning flashes of headache assailed him. Sir Francis bustled into the room, waving the butler in after him. Lewis found his gaze riveted on the covered tray the butler carried. Sir Francis sat down on the edge of the bed, staring at Lewis no less fixedly. Do you recall Marche? Not a great deal, my lord. Uh, That wouldn't happen to be breakfast, would it? The butler lifted the napkin to disclose a pitcher, a small pot of honey, and a dish of little cakes. Sir Francis twisted his fingers together self-consciously. That's our milk and honey, uh, the uh, closest my cook could approximate to ambrosia. The honey comes from Delos, he said with a peculiar tone of entreaty in his voice. Lewis dragged himself into a sitting position, though his brain quailed against the red-hot lining of his skull. The butler set the tray on his lap. He grabbed up the pitcher, ignoring the crystal tumbler provided with it, and drank two quarts of milk straight down without pausing to breathe. Sir Francis watched with round eyes as he gulped the ambrosia cakes one after another, and seizing upon a spoon, started on the honey. Mm, "'Wonderful stuff,' said Lewis, remembering his manners. "'Might I have a little more?' (laughs) "'Anything you like,' said Sir Francis, beckoning distractedly at John. Lewis held the pitcher up. "'Another round of this, please, and three or four loaves of bread?' "'With jam, sir?' "'No, no, no jam, thank you, no.' John took the pitcher and hurried out of the room. Oh, you'd wonder you have an appetite. Uh, This was quite an astonishing evening, my boy. We're all greatly indebted to you. Never saw anything quite like that in my life. But uh, I received the impression that you'd um, enacted certain rites before, said Lewis, scraping the bottom of the honey jar with a spoon. Why, so we 
have, but never with such remarkable results, said Sir Francis. What an improvement on your predecessor. He was no fit vessel for divinity at all. Treated the ladies most disrespectfully. I sent him packing. Then we discovered he'd helped himself to the spoons. Apprehended him in the very act of boarding the coach with my best silver coffee urn in his trunk, too. Would you credit it? Not at all like you. Such Olympian presence. Such efficacy. Whitehead looks positively well. How do you feel now, Paul? I said, and bless me if he didn't reply. Why, sir, I declare I could pile Mount Pelion upon Mount Ossa and straightwise mount to heaven. I'm gratified, my lord, said Lewis cautiously, though I confess the evening is... "'somewhat indistinct in my memory. "'I expect it would be, my sir. "'I suspect you were scarcely there at all, eh?' <laughs> "'Sir Francis winked at him. "'But I'll leave you in peace. "'John will lay out your clothes, "'all freshly laundered, "'though the wigs at the barber's "'for a fresh setting and powdering. "'It was in a sad state, I fear, "'and I've taken the liberty "'of having a new pair of shoes made. "'One of yours seems to go on missing in the stick. "'You'll find them in the bottom of your wardrobe. New, "'New shoes? Made overnight? "'Overnight? Oh, bless me, no! "'You've slept for three days! "'A very endymion!' "'Sir Francis told him he lingered shyly by the door for a moment, "'his eyes downcast. "'You've rendered me a greater service than I can ever repay. "'Your servant, sir!' Lewis enjoyed an unaccustomed luxury of idleness over the next few days. The servants tiptoed in his presence, looked on him with awe, and leapt to bring him anything he requested. He used the time to access and review his memory, and found, to put it mildly, some difference between what his conscious mind had perceived and what his augmented perception had recorded. He was chagrined by this, but his embarrassment was ameliorated somewhat by the relaxation of pressure as regarded his mission for the company. Dashwood objective obtained. Stop, he transmitted on his credenza long past midnight when he was unlikely to be disturbed by a servant. Attended Eleusinian rite and can report that it is not, comma, repeat, not authentic, full stop. Details well known in antiquity worked into a plausible fake stop. Source scroll not located but suspect the Eugenicus forger stop. Awaiting further orders stop. He sent the message and relaxed, but almost at once a reply shot out of the ether. Obtain source scroll stop. Client made substantial offer stop. Lewis gnawed his lower lip. He sent, but it's a fake stop. Irrelevant stop. But it wouldn't fool anyone who'd attended the mysteries. Client is mortal. Won't know difference, came the reply. With a certain sense of moral outrage, Lewis transmitted, Acknowledged, stop. Under protest, stop. Veil, stop. He knew well enough now where the object of his quest was. With a heavy heart, in the small hours following an evening during which Sir Francis had been particularly pleasant company, Lewis packed his valise. He drew on his cloak and slipped down through the dark house and out a side door into the garden. He switched to night vision. The surrounding countryside leapt into focus, lurid green, unearthly. 
Pausing only to hide his bag in a clump of rhododendron, he set out. He went quickly, though it was a long, cold walk just the same. Once a bat shrieked overhead. He looked up in time to see its smear of red light vanishing into the trees. At once a fox crossed his path, stopped to regard him with eyes like fire. He missed the little girl walking at his side and wondered whether he'd be too great a fool if he sought her out once he returned to London. He wondered whether he could bear watching her grow old and die. This question so preoccupied him that he almost failed to notice that he was being followed. After a while, however, the labouring mortal heartbeat and steam bellows breath distracted him and he looked back. There, a great way off, a scarlet blur made its way along the track. Its dark lantern pulsed with heat. A poacher? Lewis shrugged and picked up his pace until he reached the entrance to the Hellfire Caves. The gates had been locked. A moment's work with his cloak pin and Lewis had them open. Fighting panic once more, he hurried into true Stygian blackness, rendered more ghostly by his vision. Emerging from the maze into the banqueting chamber, he nearly shouted at what he took at first to be a lurking figure. But it was only a pair of serving tables stacked up on end, draped with oilcloth. Muttering to himself, Lewis went on. In the chamber with its altar, he was almost surprised to see no spot of residual heat glowing still from Mrs Digby's bum. At the River Styx, he proceeded soberly, poling himself across in the little boat with all the dignity of Charon, and stepped out dry-shod on the other shore. There, trampled and forgotten in the chalk, he spotted Persephone's veil. He bent and picked it up. He regarded it a long moment before folding it carefully and tucking it away inside his shirt next to his heart. In the inner temple he lifted the lid from the sarcophagus. Within was a box of alabaster, something Egyptian from the look of it. He lifted the lid on that and found a box of cypress wood, a modern piece painted with figures of maenads dancing. Within he found the scroll. Lewis unrolled it, examined it briefly and sighed. Yes, the work of the clever Russian. Hmm, let him not speak, he who witnessed the rites sacred to holy Demeter and her slender-ankled daughter. But bear witness, O Furies, that this scribe breaks no oath in relating the true nature of what he has seen with his silent pen. Hmm. Yes, he returned the scroll to its box, tucked it under his arm and walked back towards the starlight. He was on his way to the maze when he heard the crunch of footsteps coming. In a panic, he turned back and dodged into one of the alcoves, opening off the banqueting chamber. There he stood, absolutely still, as the mortal shuffled into the chamber. It was Sir Francis, peering about by the single ray of the light of his lamp. Lewis held his breath. Do not see me, mortal man. You will not see me, mortal. A bat swooped through. Sir Francis gasped and dropped his lantern, which unfortunately did not go out. Rather, its shutter was knocked open by the impact. The chamber was flooded with light. Oh, crumbs! Sir Francis bent to pick up the lantern, straightened with it and looked full into Lewis's face. His gaze fell to the box under Lewis's arm. Oh, dear, he said. I was afraid of something like this. Lewis, ready to babble out an apology, was quite unprepared for what happened next. Scuffing sharp-edged gravel out of the way, Sir Francis knelt down laboriously. Please, he said, which one are you? Apollo? Hermes? I was sure I recognised you the other night. Forgive my old eyes, I pray. I might have seen you more clearly once. 
I am only a messenger," said Louis, praying to both gods for help.、Uh, "Just as you wish, my lord." He regarded the scroll box sadly. "Must you take it away? We were idle, merry boys once, and we did blaspheme, but only as boys do. I had rather hoped you had come to dwell among us at last. We need you, we poor mortals." But you no longer need this. Lewis held up the scroll box, wondering if he could wink out without dropping it. I suppose not," said Sir Francis, slumping. He clasped his hands. "Please tell me, bright one, will my friend die?" "You know he must," said Lewis, as gently as he could. "Oh, Paul," said Sir Francis. He said nothing more for a moment as a tear rolled down his cheek. He looked up at Lewis hopefully, but if you are here, why then? It's a sign. The gods are not unkind; they must care for us. It's all true, isn't it? We will go to paradise and revel in the Elysian fields, just as she promised us. Believe it, mortal man," said Lewis, and then thought to himself: For all I know, it might be true. He reached down his hand as though in blessing, setting it on Sir Francis's head. Concentrating, he generated a pulse designed to give an effect on the temporal lobe of the mortal brain. Sir Francis gasped in pleasure. He heard celestial choirs, had visions of glory, and knew a sublime truth impossible to put into words. The ecstasy was enough to send him into a dead faint. Lewis picked him up and staggered out with him far away through the night fields to the great house, where he lays Sir Francis down before the statue of Bacchus. He paused only a moment, leaning forward with his hand on the wall, gasping for breath. And then he knocked loud enough to rouse the servants. Long before the fearful mortals had come to the door, he had retrieved his valise from the shrubbery and fled in the direction of London. No more than a month later. A certain peddler wandered the streets of a certain district of London. The streets were crowded and filthy, even in this somewhat better-class part of the district. The mad king squatted on his throne. The American crisis was going from bad to worse. Nay, the whole globe was reeling in chaos that would soon spit forth another age. And the first snow of winter had begun to drift out of a sullen and steely sky. The peddler's garments were shabby. Not really adequate for the weather, and yet he carried himself with a style making it not outside the powers of imagination that he might, in fact, be a dashing hero of some kind, one temporarily down on his luck, perhaps, conceivably the object of romantic affection. He doffed his hat to all he met, and when meeting any who looked as though he or she might know, discreetly inquired whether they knew the way to Mrs. Digby's establishment, hoping, even as foolish mortals do. For some sign of a compassionate universe. That story, along with some many great others by Kate Baker, can be found in her Gods and Pawns collection. That story, actually, the Hellfire at Twilight, appeared in Gardner Dozwasier's latest best years best science fiction anthology. So, quite proud to get that story. Thank you very much, Cage Baker. Don't forget, all copyright is Cage Baker's. No going out there, copy, copy, and selling, selling. 
you'll have me to deal with. <laughs> and thank you, MCL. What a fantastic narration that is there, sir. <laughs> Excellent. So, yes, thank you, everyone. Do pop over to the website. Do check out Cage Baker's website. So that wraps it up again for another Oral Delight. I hope you've enjoyed it. Hope it's been fine and dandy. Like I say, if you've got like an idea for a little fact article, you want to have a good bash at sending it in, please. I would love to, you know, have a listen to it. Make it 10, 15 minutes long and make it interesting. Flash fiction, you know, 1,200 words. You can kind of cross the boundary, science fiction, fantasy, a little bit of horror. It's up to you. Make it exciting. That's all that's got to be done. So, yes, please pop over to the shop, the Starship Sofa. Check out the back shows if you want. Don't forget my audiobook is still on special offer at the moment. If you buy the whole back shows collection, $9.99, you get the Jumping Into Possibilities by my good self, Mr. Tony C. Smith. For that same price, that'll come, be coming off there soon. So this is probably your last chance to go over and get the whole kit and caboodle. It'll just be eventually just by itself there, or for four ninety nine. But if you just want that collection, jumping into possibilities, please, that would make me very happy. Don't forget, if you want to keep popping over to the main website and see if the Starship Sanatorium is up there and running yet. At the moment of recording this, it's not, but I have no idea because I will be on my happy holidays, as the kids say. So I don't know if it's there or not, but if it is, pop over and that's where you really get the chance to sign up to the private feed, the Starship Sanatorium one, £2.50 a month. That gets you into my world. And you can, you can listen to the depths that I sing to sometimes. Or if you just want to leave a donation, honestly, it really, you know, if you think this is doing a good show, show your appreciation and just send some coin our way. It really keeps this bird flying, trust us. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Again, thank you so much. I would just like to say... Good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.